Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Do you have mic checks and everything? We're good? Yeah. Okay, so we'll just go ahead and get started. Um, just for the mic check, and so we have it on record, can I have you say and spell your name? Yeah, it's Teal Swan, T-E-A-L-S-W-A-N. Okay, and I'm just going to have you just kind of tell me your story from six years old on. Okay. All right. Well, I should probably start before then because this all started basically when um, I was really young and I started exhibiting these types of abilities, basically. And regardless of whether somebody does or doesn't believe in extrasensory abilities or psychic behavior or else being able to heal someone with energy, stuff like this, there are a lot of people in the world who do believe in those things and a lot of religions that believe in those things, right? So when I was younger, I would put my hands on people and they'd experience healings or I would talk to them from the standpoint of their dead relatives, stuff like that. And I was also able to see the auric field, what I now understand is the auric field. So I would be talking to people about things that I technically shouldn't know at that age. And it was a little off-putting to my parents, super scary to them, if I wanted to be honest, to have this kid who, they were really scientific, not even religious people. And so to have this kid with all these, these interesting abilities was like, whoa, we don't know what to do with this. So it's really important to understand that because it's the real basis for why I was brought in like I was. Um, so my parents, they ended up being offered a job, a wilderness forest ranger job in this like rural area in between Idaho and Utah. And um, I don't know if they were super aware of just how intensely religious everything was in the state before they moved and so they weren't really thinking about whether it would be a major impact on me. Now when I got here, as a kid you don't, you're not really socialized yet, so you don't know what's normal and what's not normal. So I would just do what was normal. And I'd say go to class. My first few times going to school was not good. I'd go up to the teacher and I'd be like having conversations with her about something that her dead father had wanted to say to her. Or, you know, things like that. And it just so happens that the, the most dominant religion in the area that I grew up in is Mormonism. And in Mormonism, they believe in this concept that all of the God-given abilities, which are some of the things that I'm demonstrating, extrasensory abilities, the ability to heal people, the ability to give blessings, stuff like that, that is seen as a gift from God to Joseph Smith and from Joseph Smith to men in the church. And so women technically could not hold priesthood, which are something that imbues these abilities. So if a woman is exhibiting these abilities, they believed at that time that it was a gift of the devil. So it like raised the hackles on the back of the neck of a lot of people that were in this really small community that was near us. And they, you know how word travels at church in small towns, it was like this person told that person told this person told that person. And it was like mass ostracization. They did not want me playing with their children. They didn't want me going into their houses. They didn't want any interaction whatsoever. They weren't seeing my parents at sacrament meeting. They were super upset about that. So after aggressively trying to convert my family and it not working, they kind of gave up. And they, they pulled the turn the other cheek type of mentality. 
But um, the issue there is that you've got all these splinter groups off of the Mormon religion, right? So you've got the FLDS, which is what most people are super familiar with. They're fundamental mm -hmm. Mormons. They believe in the idea of polygamy. Now, there are other splinter groups. One of these is a cult which operates in Utah and Idaho mainly, and it's called the Blood Covenant. They believe in blood atonement. So they've attached to that doctrine in the same way that the FLDS have attached to the idea of polygamy. And blood atonement, basically, which is something which Brigham Young was obsessive about. He would talk about this on lots of his pulpit speeches. You can look it up if you want to. Um, blood atonement is basically the idea that there are some sins which can't be paid for by the death of Christ. It has to be paid for by the blood of man. So there's a really famous pulpit speech where he basically stood up in front of the people and said, if your neighbor commits adultery, if you love him, you will kill him. So this particular group has latched onto those teachings and has used it to justify all kinds of things, which is, of course, an issue in all religions. It's like it's up to so much interpretation that let's say that you've got your basic sociopath or psychopath. Now they can infiltrate a church, basically, and they can use those teachings to justify what they're doing. So, so a lot of the people that are in this Blood Covenant group are like super deviant, like psychotically deviant. And so if you're growing up, like for example, the, there was a, a family that I grew up around in this cult where if the kids would steal something from like the cupboard, you know, like a kid tries to go take a cookie, they would slit their wrists and bleed them over a sink for like an allotted amount of time. And that was just a normal punishment. So it's like the Mormon version of the Catholic penitentes, where in suffering and in bleeding, you will basically be absolved of your sins. So I caught, I was caught on the radar of this particular cult group, and I don't know exactly how that happened. But there was a member of that particular group who actually knew my mother from previous to when I was born. And um, I didn't know any of that, by the way. So at this point, I'm like four or five, and I didn't know any of that background story. But my mother was trying to get me around friends because I had none. And so there was a girl who was in my kindergarten class, I think it was, and she thought, okay, well, it's a good opportunity to get her around them because they're not Mormon. She didn't know what they were, but they weren't Mormon. So let's get her to go over to this girl's house and see if she can make a friend. I was a like wickedly shy child. So she brought me over to that house, and the first time that I played with that girl at her house on her own, um, was when I found out that her father was actually part of a satanic cult. So this is a whole separate cult, right, which exists in this area. And um, I don't know exactly what rank he held in this particular satanic religion, but the, that first night that we went over there and I had my first sleepover with her, the father was taking pornographic photographs of the daughter and I in, in his little basement area. Now, this is, it's like, he likes sadomasochistic porn. So when I was down there, there was a man who walked down the stairs who would, of course, turn into this person who pulled me into everything, my keeper, they call it, who was this man who knew my mother previously. But he basically came downstairs with these buckets full of cow blood that he had purchased from, or I assume purchased, maybe was just given, from the slaughterhouse, which is in town in Hiram, Utah. and. The father then put the blood over us and then kept taking pictures of us kissing each other and touching each other, things like that. So I assume that he was selling those photographs or whatever else, and then uh, probably two or three times more, I went with her to satanic rituals that were taking place with those people. I had no idea what the hell was going on with them. I was super shy. He, that father was not like 
as deviant as the rest of the people that I would meet. So he was doing the really confusing back and forth stuff with his daughter a lot where one, one minute he would be doing stuff like that, the next minute he'd be like, you're so beautiful, you know, I love you, right? This is our little secret. So, but the real, the real reason I'm, you know, telling you this whole thing is because that is where I got on the radars of this particular guy who would become pretty much my number one um, abuser and what they call a keeper in the group which is this man. So that summer he ended up targeting me. I was walking, not walking, I was riding my little huffy bike sort of down below my house in a Mormon steakhouse building parking lot. And he had come up behind me, basically drug me off the huffy bike, took me into this, this steakhouse and then pushed me down to the ground on my face and I was raped by him. That was the first time I was ever raped and my first interaction with that man specifically. And he pushed, picked me up, put me back on the Huffy bike and rode me back towards the house. Now, I was completely convinced at this point that I had been in trouble for riding my bike somewhere that I wasn't supposed to be. I knew Mormons hated us, like we were non-Mormon. Of course I shouldn't be around the steakhouse. <laughs> but um, It's just like sad to me that I thought that that was my fault, of course, at that particular point. But I tried to ride my Huffy bike home, it didn't work. I pulled it over the side of the road and then ran into the field that was by it because I couldn't, I was really torn up, I was bleeding. And so I couldn't ride my huffy bike, so I ran off into the side of this field and just sat there, like in complete shock. And my whole reality fell to pieces because up until that point, it's like you sort of assume that your parents are going to be these omnipotent beings that, that pick you up before you're about to fall off a cliff or something. And that's the real moment that your childhood ends and you realize that they're not there ever, you know. Not only are they not there, they can't protect you from a lot of things. A lot of things are a lot bigger than you when you're, you know, six years old or five or six, however old I was then. Um, yeah, and so from from six years old on, this is when it really got intense because he figured out he managed like a lot of like real sociopathic people do. He managed to figure out enough about my family and enough about what I was doing that he cornered me at a horse lesson that I was working at. He was a, veg a veterinarian. So he worked actually with the horses that I was taking lessons on. And so I was riding around one day and got off of the horse and my instructor left me alone for a little bit. Walked into the house and here was this guy. So I'm watching him tie this slip knot, which they tie with horses and I was super fascinated with it at that age and I was kind of like, I remember this feeling of paralysis coming over me, looking at this guy, remembering like what it was that, that he had done, you know. But he turned over at when nobody was around, because she had gone inside, I didn't remember what to get, but he took my throat, pushed me up against the side of the building and said, you don't know what your life is. You have no idea who I am, but I'm your real father, and your mother is a whore. And if you say anything about the fact that we have talked to each other, your whole entire family's gonna die. And he's like, you better look out for me, girl. That's basically what he said. So I was like, um. And how old were you? I was six at that point. Okay. But it was in between, it was sort of like before I started first grade. Now, this is where it gets super, like, super complicated because of the nature of this particular man. But I was like, from that moment on, because he cornered me like that, and when you're little, like, we got to understand this. When you're little, you have no reason to disbelieve an adult. None. So if a guy says he's going to kill your family, he's going to kill your family. There's no, there's no, like, if, ands, or buts about that. So this guy had already managed to figure out that 
that my family and I were not a good match, we'll put it that way. It's like, you know, people would love me to say, my parents were fabulous, I just got sort of taken. But the reality is, is that I didn't get along with my family, and especially my mother. I was like majorly ostracized in the family that I grew up in. So sociopaths often like to capitalize on that, like the kid that doesn't fit in or the kid no one relates to. They're like usually really quiet and sort of off to the corner, and that's a really good venue for them to kind of get in between the parents and the kid, which is exactly what he did. So when he told me that, that he would be there, that was like, I, I really look at that as sort of the end of my whole childhood, because from that moment on, it's like it doesn't matter whether I'm going on a hike with my family or a camping trip or whether I'm at school, there's always a part of me that's like, where is he going to be? It's that scary sort of he's all around and could be anywhere at any point type of thing, which drives you nuts when you're in this kind of a situation. So that's when he started systematically, without my parents' knowledge, taking me places. Like he'd take me from dance class sometimes. He'd take me from school. And we have to understand too, when I went to school, it was not like it is now. You don't have to, you didn't have to like take pictures of people who could pick your kid up. Nobody knew about this stuff, especially not in the bigger cities. I mean, everything hits rural towns like five years too late or 10 years too late. So. Nobody really thought that this was a possibility. And so what would happen is he'd send me to school after the first time, of course, of like just calling the school and saying Teal needs to meet us outside, and then me walking outside having it be him there instead of my parents. He would send me to school with the, in my lunchbox with these notes written from my parents that I was to hand in after they took roll. And they would say, Teal needs to come to gymnastics class or something, and we're going to pick her up at this time. And my my little elementary school was on the grounds of a college campus. Edith Bowen was where I went to. And so they couldn't monitor like where people were or weren't. There was adults all the time wandering in and out of the children because it was on a college campus. So it wasn't like there would be any red flags if there was a random person that showed up. And so um, he would say park his truck and then I would get out and they'd be like, do you need someone to walk you out? I'd say no and so I'd go out and I'd get in his car and then he'd have me gone for the whole day and then bring me back and drop me off before my parents would pick me up. So that was a routine that went on for a while. Then he stole me out of bed a few times as well before he trained me to wake up, which was quite easy for him to do. He just employed like your basic Pavlov's response stuff. So, so I would wake up 3.22 a.m., walk out to the end of the driveway, and, and he'd pick me up and we'd go do these cult rituals. So this is, so I'll explain this person. Um, the context of my childhood isn't going to make sense unless I do that because the particular man who was what they call my keeper in this group had multiple personality issues, like big ones, where one minute you'd call him by one name and he wouldn't even know who you were talking to. You know, and then he'd have a, these, so basically he had these, like a personality which I would often call Doc, who was like the all-knowing, the one that most people in this, in this society saw and he was like a really educated, super charismatic or typical sociopath type of a person who could have just pulled one on anybody. He, he was really friendly, really charming, super handsome. So that was that personality. The other personality, which he called Egnever, ironically, was like super evil and was part of these satanic groups. So, so here we have this dichotomy. So you've got the multiple personalities with this person and depending on which personality he had, he belonged to this group or this group. He belonged to two cults. One cult was that satanic cult, the other cult was the blood covenant cult. 
Now, what gets ironic is that they're against each other. This is where, you, if you really want to know about some messed up stuff that happens when you're too bored in a rural town and have some issues, <laughs> the Blood Covenant cult doesn't take the opinion, turn the other cheek. They don't agree with that. What they believe is that it's your direct job to rid the earth of evil. So they're aware that there are satanic groups that operate in the towns that they're living in. So what they do is they use somebody that's part of the group to infiltrate the satanic group so that they can hold counter-rituals. So let's say that, and satanic people have, like if you look at their calendar year, it's at least once or twice a month they have some kind of holiday. So what they'll do, say if they have like a, a Black Sabbath day, is that they, the next day, the Blood Covenant group will, will like hold a return back to the light of Christ type of, of ritual. So, and it's like, here you have mainstream Mormonism and mainstream society, and they're completely unaware of these things that are happening on the undercurrent here of these two rival groups, basically, that are more than aware of each other. So, so the man I was with was attending both of these ceremonies, but saying to the Blood Covenant group, that he was just doing the satanic group stuff for the sake of holding counter rituals. So they're like, okay, good. Yeah, you can continue to do that because it benefits us. But from my perspective, he actually liked that and was really participating with it. So that's where it got super complicated. But over the course of, so that was when I was six, it was when I was infiltrated, I infiltrated these groups with him. He was using me in the satanic group as, look at her abilities, she's got all these amazing abilities, you can use them to like invoke the devil and demons and things like that. And then simultaneously I'm getting like tortured by the, the Blood Covenant group because it was their idea that they could get the demon out of me, that was their whole philosophy. The reason that I could do this stuff is that my body was taken over by a demon. And that when I was two, I kicked that spirit out and I took it over, basically. And that if they could get this demon out, that that spirit would come back. That was their whole thing. So they went to work, like, bleeding me, doing all kinds of, like, horrific stuff to try to get me to come back to Christ. So my childhood from age, what I consider six, even though technically it started beforehand, that was when I really consider, like, the end of my childhood when I got brought into them and I really didn't belong to my parents anymore all the way to 19, I was with these groups and specifically with this man. Now, when, when you are part of a lot of these, these groups, and now we're talking satanic specifically, um, what they'll do is they'll assign somebody like me, they call me an oracle. An oracle is, is a role where somebody has the ability to access the underworld or whatever. So we, oracles, are not actually allowed to take care of ourselves at all. Now, having grown up, I can see that this is just a ploy, of course, to keep us completely dependent and unable to leave. But we are not able to cook for ourselves. We're not able to clean for ourselves. We're not able to do any self-care type of behavior. Instead, we're assigned a keeper. Of course, it was obvious. Let's just give her to the person who brought her to us, right? Which is this particular guy. And he becomes the keeper role. So his job is to make sure that I am where I'm supposed to be. He's the one driving me. He's the one feeding me. He's the one that's making sure things are the way they are. Now the reason that my childhood is a lot more complicated than most is because I didn't get outright taken away from my parents and kept somewhere without their knowledge. What happened is that he ended up, when I, the older that I got, when I was eight years old my parents decided to get me a horse so there was his perfect opportunity to come into the family and, and like really weasel his way in there so that knowledgeably they would give me to him basically. Um, he was like, okay I'll, I'll be your vet. 
her your horse and I'll teach her everything she needs to know about horses. And my parents, you know, in their defense, they were like, I don't know what to do with this kid. She's obviously miserable. We have no idea why. She's got these abilities we don't understand. We don't really relate to her. And so if we can find somebody that could help her with something, then let's just do that. And so thinking that it would be like a mentorship, they allowed me to go on weekends with him up to his house or on rounds during the day, stuff like that, thinking the whole time that, you know, at least somebody knows how to help her. <laughs> but he was creating the very condition that he said that he was solving, basically. Yeah, so that's, that's how it all started. I don't know what else to say. This is the sort of issues. They're like, there's so many details. You're going over, like, 13 years, basically, mm -hmm. of really horrific shit. There's so many, so many things that happened. That it's, like, hard for me to know exactly which ones people want to hear about. And, chronologically lay them out, so. You can keep going, I mean, all the way up through when you got out and whatever you're comfortable talking about. I know you said that he took you to his house. When you, what, oh, yeah. I mean, what sort of things were happening there? Well, first time I went to his house, my parents let me go my first time when I was eight years old with my horse. So we went up to his house and it was a super rainy day and we ended up that night going on this horse ride in the rain and he was training these two horses and he was super sadistic like really, really sadistic. So he thought it was super funny, even though I was, pe I was petrified, even though I was a horse freak, I was super petrified at that age of, of like um, horses being so small. So I was riding this horse that I had just barely got for my birthday for the very first time. And he had this super insane horse that was just barely being trained, who was a twin. And with twin horses, if you separate them out, basically, they, have, they throw fits and they try to get back to the other one. So he thought it was super funny to like, to like let it go and let it run up on the back of my horse. So when he did that, my horse steps over this embankment, which was like this huge drop off. And we, I had this enormous horse fall, basically, where I fell down this embankment, looked up to watch my horse fall back over onto her back and do a somersault backwards. And of course he comes down, he starts yelling. He was a real sort of Western bravado type of a person. There was no gentleness about him at all. So he stood over me and he was like, you get back on that horse right now. I'm shivering, the horse is shaking. I feel paralyzed, can't do it. Because I didn't do it, he threw me down on the floor and then he stepped on both of my arms and actually ended up hairline fracturing them. So I ended up getting me back on my horse, rode to the house. Later that night, he ended up raping me. He had a wife, ironically, who was not there that night. I have no idea where he was. And then as punishment, I was put down in the basement, which was like this little cement, it was like a cellar. It's just a cement part of his house, basically. And like, it was common for him not to let me do normal things like sleep in beds. My place that I could sleep was in the bathtub with no blankets and he would make me eat out of the dog bowls and drink out of the dog bowls. I wasn't allowed to pee or anything inside. I had to go outside for that. So that was that. Um, that, that day when I went up there first too, he ended up showing me these Polaroid pictures, which is where it got really creepy. So this man actually killed children. And what he would do in his drawer of his office is he kept, he kept a Polaroid camera. And with every kid that he killed, he would keep a stack of the exact same positions that he would take a picture of every kid in. So one of them was like, you had to be looking at the camera with your eyes up like that because he liked the whites of the eyes because that looked super innocent. And then he'd take a profile to both sides. Then he'd take a, a straight up. And then he would basically, he'd take this stack of Polaroids and he'd keep them. So he walked me out 
to the back, and I didn't see this particular murder take place like I saw other ones happen, but he took me out to his, his back place, and he had a lawn that sort of abutted this enormous wilderness, and there was like a, a piece of earth that was obviously dug up, and he put, gave me this Polaroid stack of pictures of this little, like I would say, I would probably guess she was a five-year-old, like little blonde girl. And he told me basically that he was keeping her safe. This is where it is. So that was his dysfunction. His dysfunction was basically that by having these kids, especially girls, in his property, that he could keep them safe that way. And so I'm sitting there looking at this picture, looking at the grave, looking at the picture. Now, I can't tell you that I know for a fact she was there because I didn't witness it. But having seen him kill other children after that, I have no reason to doubt that that was what I was seeing, was basically these Polaroids of a kid he had killed and then buried in his backyard. So, yeah, that was my first <laughs> really lovely introduction to him. And then very quickly after that, he started in with the, the intentional programming. So most people who are part of these groups, they get into mental programming. And most of the mental programming routines that they, they carry out, they have found from these documents which are mostly written in German. I don't know where they've gotten them. But one of my first programming sessions was performed in a veterinary office. I walked in there, and it was not just my keeper. It was also another guy who had his face was covered in black mesh. Like, he didn't want me to know who he was. Later, I did meet him and know exactly who he was because the older you get in these groups, now suddenly you become part of the perpetrator circle, and you're now working on younger children. So at that beginning, I didn't know who he was, and he just had that black stocking. And so what he was doing was a, a basic bonding program. So if you look at these, these mental programming sessions that they do on children, it's a very, it's, it seems complicated, but it's actually more easy than it seems. So it's basically a 12 program cycle. One of the very first things you want to do programming a child is to bond them to the perpetrator. So what you do is you induce a trauma. So the way that they like to do that is to use electroshocks, which is super easy. You just buy a kit, basically. So I was sitting there that first day. They were putting these white pads with a little gel underneath them all over my body, and then they turn on the electroshocks. So you get traumatized. I pissed myself. It's like being electrocuted is pretty much the most unbearable thing you can imagine. So that induces a state of trauma in the system. And then what this man was instructing the guy to do is you're not allowed to touch someone like me who's being programmed if you're the perpetrator unless you're doing it to specifically bond the person to you. So the way you do that is by becoming in like the savior. So the only point at which this man was allowed to show me physical affection is when I was in a state of trauma. So he induces the trauma with that and then he um, tells this guy, my keeper, to hold me. And it's like, it's a very bizarre sensation, even though this person is the one that's traumatizing you. Simultaneously, it's like the relief feeling you feel when somebody hugs you, regardless of who they are, when you're going through that kind of trauma. It's like this unbelievable chemical bond, almost, that goes on in your body. So I remember that feeling of like intense relief and just holding on to him after that was happening. And so that really creates in the mind this circuitry where I love this guy. This guy is the person I'm supposed to follow around, and it's like it's we're past love at this point. It's like an excessive type of dependence, and you'll watch this a lot with with victims who have been traumatized, and we deliberately in groups will program for it to create a scenario where 
the person is like trauma bonded to the very person who's creating the issue. You can observe this in animals even. So like, you know, the dog who gets kicked by their owner is like the one who's underneath them wagging their tail and they're constantly obsessed with whether they're gonna get approval, whether they're gonna get approval. So if, you're, if your life rests in somebody's hands, you, your life is going to be about one thing and one thing only and that's finding approval from that person. That's it, so there you have trauma bonding. So I, my relationship with this man from that point on turned, turned into this like excessive attachment. I was obsessed with getting his approval no matter what because my life is in his hands. And then, so we were attending rituals. We were doing, I mean, he was doing messed up stuff with me on his own, but we were attending rituals also. Um, rituals where they did murder children and animals. Animals is what they did like on your average holiday, but on the big ones, which they call black masses, which is probably what the public would like to know about most, where basically, it's where basically, and this is mostly satanic people, these covens of like 13 usually, because they believe in 13 silver moons in a year, there's 13 full moons, so it's usually 13 members of a satanic coven. Um, they'll get together with other covens in the area for these big black masses, they call them. And those are on specific days throughout the year. So on a few of those, I watched them actually kill children. And that's when we really got into the human sacrifice thing, which is what most people want to interview me about, you know, because that's like so abhorrent and most people can't even imagine that going on. So um, when I got older, I found out how they actually found these children. When I was younger, they would use me and other kids who were part of the groups to entice these children into the car. It's a very stereotypical act. All you do is you case a neighborhood, which is easy because they're bored and looking for ways to excite themselves and they're really sadistic fetishes anyways. So they case the neighborhoods for kids that are not being watched. Their number one favorite group is, is children who are part of the foster care system. So there's a loophole in our foster care system in this United States, in West specifically, I don't know if it's super bad out East, but out West there's a really bad loophole where basically if you want to foster children because they're so overrun with children to foster, then they'll give you the kid and then you get your monthly stipend check. And so there was a lot of these families who, especially in the Idaho area that I met, who <coughs> they foster children not because they really want to foster children, but they want that check every month. So these parents are, it's like really horrific. They get these kids from the foster care system. They tell them, I don't want to wa be watching you, so just come home at 8 o'clock and I don't want you to come home before 8 o'clock. So they're wandering around. They go to public school, and then between when public school gets out and eight o'clock at night when they're supposed to be home, they are wandering around, basically. They have nothing to do. And it's a prime target for these groups because they find out these kids, they know exactly where they're walking to and from school, and then when they take them, this is where it gets really super messed up. If you take one of these foster kids, well, I'll back up. So the foster care people, they, they check in on kids that are being fostered, right? Mm -hmm. But their caseloads are huge as well. So even they'll tell you, we're really overrun. We can't get to everybody, and like we try, but sometimes it's like once every six months, once every year. So let's say that you're one of these families that is just using that income for the foster care kids to support your family, and you don't want to lose that check. Now, if the kid disappears, bam, and you go and you tell someone, then your monthly check's not going to come. So a lot of these kids that we're getting are from families like that, where it's like if they disappear, they're not going to say anything government? Are you kidding me? They're going to wait to the last possible second to say, oh, well, I don't know, they ran away or something. So, I mean, if you, if you look up at the, the statistics of the amount of, like, runaway missing children that there are in this country, it's going to blow your mind. I mean, children we never find again. Not kids that run away and then they come back. We're talking kids that never show up again. 
It's literally going to blow your mind. So the fact that the country is like, wow, how does anybody not notice? I'm like, I don't know. How, did that many, how, many, how does that many thousands, hundreds of thousands of children go missing every year and nobody knows? And then people are like, well, how do people not hear these things happening? Have you ever been to the Utah and Idaho wilderness? You can go 10 minutes off of the side of any road and nobody will hear you ever again. So, so this is like a really good window that people have here in this particular state to get away with super deviant activity. Another way that they like to, to find these children and procure children is by going to the illegal immigrant communities. Those are super easy to find. Anybody who wants to hire somebody from Home Depot in the morning can figure out how to find them. So what they do is they follow those kids and they take those kids also. And <laughs> this is why they take those kids. If you're an illegal immigrant and your children get taken or your child, and you go to the police office and you say, my kid is missing. They say, give me your ID. Now, if they find out that you're illegal, they will deport you. So you have an option, basically, as a parent who's lost a child inside this country. Either you don't say anything and you look for, by yourself for a kid that's missing, or you get deported to an entirely different country than the one that your kid is now missing in. So obviously, most parents opt to not say anything and to search by themselves. So that's basically the two biggest group ways that they find these, these children, essentially, that they take. And sometimes they'll kill them that night, sometimes they will keep them for months at a time. And they have, like, a lot, some of the members will have these, these lava tubes. So in Idaho, they have lava tubes all over the place. And so, like, on private land, it's not uncommon to, like, find something of a, like, a sinkhole that's on the property. And so if it's a big enough sinkhole, then what they'll do is they'll keep these kids in there in animal cages. So just like the one you'd buy, like a classic German shepherd or something. And they'll keep them in there for months, leading them up to these ritual ceremonies. So, yeah, we were used for that, which was like hell on earth. <laughs> you talked about your keeper um, doing multiple things to you. He raped you. He kept you in the bathtub. What else did he do to you? One of his favorite things to do is to chase me through the woods. He was obsessed with survival stuff, and so he played these tracking games, he called them. In retrospect, it's like the creepiest thing in the world to me, but when I was going through it, I was like, oh, he's just doing this for my own good. He was teaching me how to escape demons by being completely untrackable. So, so he would, like, say he'd be driving, and he'd, pull, he'd just start counting. It was like he would switch into these different personalities sometimes. So he'd be, he'd be driving, and suddenly he'd be like, 20? 19, 18, he'd like pull over to the side of the road and that was my cue that I was supposed to get out of the, the car and then run, basically. And I was supposed to evade him. And so it was like for, for a timed period of like two or three hours, I would be trying to run away from him while he tracked me. And if he caught me, I would get punished. Like my rib cage is covered in these, these scars because he would count coup. That was what he believed was um, like what enemies in the the, I think as Native American cultures used to do is they would count coup on somebody that they would triumph over. So I have slits in my rib cage from each time that he won essentially those tracking games and rape was also a part of that but I didn't mind that as much as being like, you know, having a knife drawn across my rib cage. And if I got away then I would get rewarded either with a Tootsie Roll or with a lesson because he liked to teach me things. So like if I got away from him and it was two hours had gone by and he hadn't found me, he would do a whistle and I would come back and then he'd be like super congratulatory. And then he would teach me something about quantum physics or teach me something about what herbs I could eat out, outdoors if I was ever in a survival situation. 
before, he'd teach me an extra thing about how to cover my tracks so nobody knew where I was. So it's like back then I got really proud of myself when I would get away from him instead of realizing that I was being chased through the woods by somebody who killed children, which is what the sort of reality is retrospect. <laughs> yeah. No. I don't even know what to do but, but laugh because it's like so messed up. How many children did you watch him kill? I can remember, well, him specifically, not the group five. So you, you physically watched him kill five. Yeah. How many did the group did you witness? Probably seven over the course of my life, I think. Yeah. I haven't counted them exactly. But it, it, there were a significant amount. Yeah. And this wasn't just a, we're going to shoot you and get it over with. There was pain. Oh, yeah. To, I mean, if you want to go into detail of how this happened, you're more than welcome to. But talk to me a little bit about what you witnessed. Well, with him, it was, always, it was always the same scenario when he killed boys. I didn't watch him kill girls, I don't think. Yeah, I don't actually remember. So when I watched him kill boys, what it was is that he would get them off the side of the road and then he would bring them to a house or another location and then he would have the boys kiss me, almost like he was getting off. So he'd be jacking off while he was watching the little boy do whatever he was doing with me. And then it was like something would snap and he would go into this completely other mode of like jealousy rage. And so as if he was mad that the boys were touching me, even though he was the one that told them to, he would grab them and like brutally beat them to death. Or in one occasion, he hacked them to death with a small like axe. That was him on his own. With the ritual group, they're, they're not like that. It's not like a hodgepodge, emotionally induced type of a thing. It's more like what's creepy about the group is it's more like there's zero emotion involved in it where their number one way is to do it on ritual bonfire. So they would have in like this black mass, I'll, I'll tell you one of them because this is pretty much what it was like most of the time. Um, so we were in the Idaho wilderness uh, right outside of this, I guess if you, t if you go from Preston, Idaho and you drive up this side canyon, you're in this huge aspen grove. And so we were up there probably five minutes walk from one of the main roads that was winding through that particular area. and. Um, we were all brought to this place where people were wearing these gold masks with like purple robes and then some people were wearing black masks or I mean, black robes with white masks. So they're all standing in this grove a lot more than just the coven that I had been introduced to. It was probably three or four covens so I would say in total probably 40 something people were at this particular gathering. So we're standing there, they're doing like a chanting so they're around in a circle and they're reading I guess from old, I have no idea what language it was. Most of them didn't explain these types of things to me when I was a kid, I just was watching it. So I'm standing there and through the woods come these two men and they had like a pole, kind of like you'd use for a teepee pole. And there was a little girl, I, I'm guessing again, she was probably five, she was super tiny. She was Mexican in Orient, I can tell because she had the dark skin and everything. So. They had taken her and she was tied up, so they had put this teepee pole thing there and then they tied her hands and her legs up to it, so it was like her face was facing down, right? And <coughs> these two men were carrying her in towards this enormous fire that they had made. And to make a fire hot enough to burn a human body is like, you have to make it really, really hot. So they had to be burning it probably since the morning, way before I ever got there. 
but they ended up doing a ritual with her and then they just picked her up and put her right down over the top of the fire. Now, it is one of the most horrific things you'll ever watch, not because it's like, they actually die pretty quickly that way because the second that they get over that immense amount of heat, they take their first in-breath and they're gone. It, and it basically sears your lungs to the point of no return. But the most horrific thing is just watching, like I remember as, like, when they put her in, her hair was dissolved instantaneously. It's like when you put hair in fire, it just disappears. So not only that, what most people have never thought about and don't see is that the skin just like liquefies and it starts to fall off of the body in sheets. So that I was watching it fall into the fire like that and then pretty soon we were left with basically only bones and like sinews and stuff like that. So I, just, I don't know what they do with the bones that they do in those rituals because usually we leave before anything's cleaned up. It takes quite a while for a, a body to completely burn. So that was a pretty typical way of killing them. And, for, and this you have to know too, for the different holidays they, it requires killing people in different ways so, and different ages. So some of the rituals require aborted fetuses, some of them require tiny babies, others require like a, a woman who's in the prime of her reproductive cycle, things like that. And if they, if they take a woman who's in the prime of her reproductive cycle, the way that you kill them is by slicing them across the throat. How, how did you not fall victim to being oh. a sacrifice? I have no idea. I would love to. I would love to tell you that I know exactly why, but I don't. Like, if I'm looking back from an adult standpoint, it's like I can see a few times where it got really close, really, really close. And I, I think what it was, if I'm an adventurer, I guess. I think it was the because of what I was capable of doing with these abilities that they really did believe in. That why would you get rid of your access to the underworld? Why would you get rid of I mean, they used to drink my blood in rituals on purpose, thinking that if they did that, that they'd have protection or be able to see into the future, things like that. So it doesn't, it wouldn't make sense, I guess, to sacrifice that. And also, if you have somebody with these insane occult abilities, basically, I guess there was some part of them that hoped to groom me for a matriarchal position, which is a lot of the satanic groups are highly matriarchal, not patriarchal. This is another thing which might surprise people to know. Um, so like usually instead of there being a primary male priest that's, oh, that's like presiding over all these women and the patriarchy is what keeps everyone down, a lot of times it's a super deviant matriarchal character like the crone type of character who is the one who's telling people what to do and is orchestrating these huge events and things like that. So I could assume they were probably grooming me for that particular position because when I turned 13, the tables flipped, even though I was still getting like tortured by them, programmed by them, everything. Because you have to reinstate programs. Like some of them will stick longer, other ones you have to reprogram over and over again to make sure that those neural pathways stay completely fresh in the brain. So besides that though, the tables were turned and I was now flipped into a position of working with the younger children's programming them which worked for my therapy because I know how they do it. So if I know how they do it, I now know how to deprogram myself and it's beneficial also because I can teach you know, these people who um, are working in the profession of ritual trauma, psychologists and things, I can teach them how to deprogram now. But that was originally why I didn't want to talk to people about what was going on with me. I had never planned on telling anybody, by the way. <laughs> this is like sometimes surprising to me that I'm now super public about this because None of us are going to talk. You know, when we get away, that's where we start. So, 
I had planned on not telling anybody, especially because I was convinced I was going to be put in jail. Because when you realize, like, oh, these things are, like, punishable crimes, oh, you know, you realize I've programmed children. I've participated in sacrifices. And even though it's, like, it's because you've been traumatized and you have no option. I mean, it's too difficult to talk to somebody who's been in a space of freedom. You can't really explain to them what it's like to mentally be in the situation where you would do anything you were told to do because you don't have another option. But you get there mentally, so even though I had no other option than to, to do these things with these groups, it's like the massive amount of guilt that I have a hard time getting over and it's the reason I didn't want to talk. I don't want to end up in a jail cell because I did something when I was 17 with a cult group that took me in when I was six. Like, <laughs> yeah. So you, you programmed some of the children that were brought into the cult. Did a child ever die at your hands? No. No, but I didn't. What really kills me is that I didn't do anything to stop them. It's like when I, the older I've gotten, it's like the more you get out of this haze that you get in with these groups, the more that I'm sort of like wishing that they would have killed me just because I was protesting. It's like it would almost be morally better to die because if you were saying no than watch and not be able to do anything like I felt like I was doing for so long. So there was a point where you started protesting while you were in? Oh, no. I never protested. That was my, that's my issue. That's like my number one guilt. That you didn't protest? Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was an option. And you were 19 when you got out? Yep. And how did you get out and what was the... What was it that clicked for you? Or what was that moment when it was like, oh, crap, I have to get out? This, this is really funny because this is like, people love me to, they want to hear a story where I'm basically so excited to be gone finally. And that is so the, not the way that it went. Um, the way that it went is that I was, I was wanting to leave to do other things. I was like, because I had started modeling. He used to prostitute me when I was younger. There's a lot of things I haven't talked about that he'd done to me that I was like, but basically one of the things he used to do is make money by prostituting me out when I was younger. So he'd take Polaroid photographs of me covered in blood and then he would go and like to Wendover was the most typical place we went or sometimes motels just in Logan, Utah or in Preston, Idaho. And um, what he would do is he would sit in the back of his truck and I don't know how the hell he orchestrated this because I didn't watch him call these people, but men would approach the truck He'd show them these Polaroid photographs, and then they'd decide what they would want me to do with them, and they'd pay him for it. So, like, one of the most common things to do, I don't know if you remember, the, but back in the day, um, with these gas stations, what they used to have with gas stations is an outdoor bathroom, mm-hmm. not an indoor bathroom. Right. So what they'd do is pull to the side, and I would go into the outdoor bathroom, and then the guy would come in, and then he'd do whatever the hell he wanted to, rape or have me, you know, perform fellatio stuff like that and then they would go back and then pay him for it so he would take me and I'd probably see like the most I ever saw in a night was eight usually it was like two or three and that was how he was making money but when I turned 12 it's like the guys who were into that pedophile stuff they don't really want to have sex with you anymore because you're older so um, at first this guy my keeper was super pissed about it He's losing money. Like, I can't deal with the fact that you're getting older. This is not okay because you're losing clientele. In fact, you're going to have to pay me for the money that I'm losing because you're getting tits. <laughs> so um, I didn't know how to do that. And he got it in his mind that basically, what if she could model? You know, that would be a good idea because she's pretty enough. Why don't, we, why don't we just see, like, what happens there? So 
I started, I sort of got into it. Like the funny part is it's not like he threw me into the modeling thing, gave me that suggestion and I was like, oh bummer. I was like amazed by this other world out there. Cause I was growing up in this rural town as a t like bumpkin kid basically, even though I had educated children or sorry, educated parents. I had educated parents. So uh, even though I had that reality, um, I sort of saw this glamor, you know, in the world of fashion and these women who were like, instead of being used and destroyed, basically, they were like glorified and I loved it, God. So I became totally obsessed with modeling, got into it. Most of the money that I was making out of modeling, I was giving right back to my keeper because that was the rule but there. And um, when I was 19 or so, I had graduated from high school and I was 16. I had, was incapable of doing anything, which is typical of children who are in cults like this when we're programmed with the no self-care programs. It's like the time that your parents sort of expect you to fly, but no, I was in and out of hospitals and in psychology offices every other 10 seconds and they were trying to figure out what the hell was going on with me. They mentioned abuse more than 100 times, but like looking at my parents and figuring it's not them, they're like, well, I, it can't be abuse, so what the hell are we looking at? And I slipped through the cracks like a lot of killed children who are part of these cults do. Where, where even though there are people who suspect, it's like it never occurs to them, my parents, that it's a family friend. It never occurs to the the people that it can be like a whole cult group that's super good at doing what they do. So I just went unchecked and I was like not functioning, but I still had these sort of dreams of being um, a model. So I had planned to get away from him for just a little bit to go do some modeling. I was not planning on running away. I'll just like go there right now and tell you. I didn't think I'd ever be gone. So it was just like, I need to go on a trip, which was not allowed. The, f the last time I'd gone on a trip, he actually killed my dog. So I planned on going on this, this trip. He found out, caught wind from my mother, and he had planned the scenario because he was super furious. So I get back from a trip, and he injected me as ketamine, this is the other story, because he was a veterinarian, he had access to ketamine, dormitor, and xylazine. So all three of those drugs were used on me like a lot throughout my childhood. At that point I was actually hooked on, on um, a ketamine that you could drop on the pulse points of your skin that he had given me to calm down, because I was having what they call bleed over symptoms. When you put somebody through so much trauma, then, then the programming that they, they institute to be able to shift into emotional states, so this is what I mean. If you're a kid, basically, who's been in these groups, they need you to be able to function mm -hmm. so that nobody notices. So what they do is they create a split program so that if they, they teach you to snap your fingers, and the minute you do that, you feel good. You don't feel anything. So anytime you start feeling emotional anxiety or something like that, you snap your fingers. You can actually train a child to, to and on one hand, they're crying. The next minute they do that, they're like, what's going on? It's that simple. So they train you with the split programming so that they can make sure that you can function at school and so that you're doing this with the group. And it's, a, it's basically you're living a double life. So I, I specifically programmed children for this, so I've watched them do this, and it was done on me as well. So bleed over symptoms is what happens when this is no longer working, when you've got so much subconscious trauma, essentially, that, that most of the time the person spends in a state of serious anxiety. So I was starting to have seizures, which they think is, it's either trauma seizures or it's seizures that are induced by the long-term use of ketamine, things like that. So 
so that's another bleed over sentiment, sort of like they're no longer able to contain completely the trauma that's happening within the system. So the extreme anxiety I was going through, he would give me droplets of ketamine to put on my skin instead. And I was carrying that around with me. So I think that that was the reason, if I'm gonna go and put a theory in, I think that's the reason that he gave me the wrong dose, which is the first time he's ever messed up like that in my life. So he was planning an elaborate programming scenario where he was supposed to inject me with a full dose of ketamine which would put me unconscious and then I would wake up having no memory. It didn't work that way. I think it's because of the fact that he had given me that dropper to continually take ketamine. My tolerance was higher. So he, he gave me a missed dose and I didn't lose consciousness. And when he put me in the back of this van that I was in, I was conscious the entire time I was there. I was groggy, I couldn't move my body, which is pretty typical. It's one reason they love using that. The cult groups love ketamine because ketamine, you can still feel everything. Until you go completely conscious, you can still feel everything, but you can't move. So I couldn't move my body, but I was awake watching at twilight, watching all of the, you know, like the trees when you drive, you've got like that sort of sunshine, dappled sunlight that's coming through. So then he brought me to this group of really tall pine trees, walked me off of the road probably 10, 20 minutes, could have been, into the woods, and there was a body there. Now, one of the members of the satanic group is this guy who owns a mortician place. So he's a, I think he's a morticianer. So it's a good way for people who are trying to really traumatize children to procure instruments of torment, essentially, by using these bodies. So we were brought into mortician's offices as well as him doing what he did this day, which was to procure that body and bring it into the woods. So at 19 years old, I walk into the woods, here's this body that he has put there. Now, he, he comes up behind me, which was quite typical for him, and smacked me in the back of the head and threw me to the ground and said, look what you do. When I am not watching you every second, this is the kind of trouble you put us all in. He was trying to convince me that I had killed this person. And I was supposed to then be like, oh my god, I'm so sorry, I'm so glad that you're like helping me with this. And I know the cops, because that's the whole thing, the cops are after you now. Um, so, so you have to stay with me. So I'm like feeling mentally messed up because I've been around enough dead bodies in my childhood to know exactly what was going on there and I wasn't out of it because he didn't dose me high enough. So I'm sitting next to this body which was missing its entire bottom jaw because it was a suicide victim. That's like pretty typical. If they angle the gun wrong when they put it in their mouth, they blow their jaw off instead of their head. So I'm, and this man is probably 30 something. Not only that, he smelled like formaldehyde. Not only that, he had a full bruise along the bottom side of his body. Not only that, you touch his skin and it doesn't bounce back. That tells me, having been around bodies for that, that long as a child, that this is an older body. So I'm like, why is he telling me that I did something I didn't do? I remember everything I've done today. I know exactly, like, he smells like formaldehyde. Like, he's been in a mortician's office. He's trying to convince me that I did something I didn't do. I have no context for this. So, he, basically that day, he had me, like, carving ritual symbols into the body. And because the body was in rigor mortis, his penis was completely erect. So he also had me perform like sex with this 
body, which is one of the worst memories, of course, of my life, because my face was three inches away from this huge wound in the bottom half of this guy's face. And so I'm having sex with this corpse, and he's getting off on it. Like, by this point, he had taken the knife and taken a huge slice of this guy's leg off of his, of his thigh muscle and was just chewing on it because he was a cannibalistic as well. So he was chewing on this, this raw piece. He never cooked it, by the way. He was into raw stuff. So he would eat this, this piece of this raw leg. He was, like, enjoying it. You should have seen the look on his face. It was like he was, for the fir first time, feeling, like, this enthusiasm, kind of. And so he's in his enthusiasm bubble watching me do all this stuff, and my reality is breaking. And it didn't feel good. It's not like, oh, my God, this is awesome. This means that... Not everything he's told me is true. It's like, wait a minute, my whole reality is falling down. If he's told me this and I didn't do it, what else has he told me that's a lie? And that was the first time that I had ever conceptualized of the idea that I had a choice and that everything he said may not be true. So he had dug this enormous pit so as to not start a forest fire, this huge pit in the ground, and we threw the body in there and then burnt this body, which took forever. We were out there for a really long time, a lot of hours. He's in the same jovial mood, and I'm watching this body burn, and then he takes the big pieces afterwards, and he'll, like, throw them, you know, into the woods, and then the rest of the ashes he'll gather and then give that back to the mortician. And it's like, I couldn't, I can't tell you how bad that feeling is when your whole reality turns out to be sort of upside down. I was not celebrating, I can tell you that. I was like, I should kill myself. But it was this weird impulse that happened internally where I was like, and I wasn't really thinking about it. Like, I should just drive away. So I get down to the base of this trail after this whole scenario was over and my car was there. He had had somebody drive it there. I got into the car and I drove and I didn't go home. I drove like three hours to Salt Lake City, where I had met a boy who actually still works with me today, which is why this is such a cool sort of turnaround. But I had met this boy t two times before this point, because I had no friends, I mean, really. And for some reason, I just felt like I could trust this guy. And it was the first time I have ever felt that way. He was so innocent, I swear to God. I, it's like, if you'll know if you meet him, I'll probably introduce him to you guys one day if you want to meet him, but he's like the most innocent, amazingly sweet person ever, and some part of me thought I can use this to my advantage. I didn't realize that I would end up like loving him as a person the way that I do. At that point it was like a survival. Survival mode was, I can, this guy can hide me, like I can use him right now. Because he's sweet and because I don't know where else to go. So I drove to his house, nobody was there. I broke in the window, he was living with two roommates going to college, and I went into the bathtub and I was like, okay, I should just get in the car and drive back home. No, I can't, yes I can, no I can't, yes I can. I didn't know any other way to cope, and so I was like, I was feeling so guilty and so evil, basically, that I defaulted to what I do from the Blood Covenant group, which was, um, if you wanna find the light of Christ, just cut yourself, bleed, and you can feel that. They tell you that, because like the endorphin hit you get when you mm -hmm. cut or you hurt yourself, they teach you that that is the light of Christ, that feeling, that forgiveness, basically. So I was like, okay, I have to find that. And so I got a razor blade and I cut myself so bad. I was bleeding all over the tiles. It was like running down the bathroom drain. And when when my Blake is his name, when he got home, he that's what he walked up to. Walks into his bathroom and there's like a blood everywhere. And he's like, Oh my God. 
you know, and typical, he doesn't call anybody. He just cleans me up, feeds me, puts me in bed, and then he's like, well, just don't go home. You just shouldn't go home. I'll just take care of you. And it's like he didn't really know the full story of what was going on at that point, but I was planning on going home still. I was just going to go home, whatever. But it was like the more that I was watching him take care of me, make me breakfast, I was feeling that sort of love, and I didn't want to go back. One day became two days, two days became three days, three days became four days. And then it was like, after a while, I really had this that full urge of like, I don't want to go back. And so it started turning into fear of going back, and then I just hid, basically, with him. Where is your keeper now? I have no idea. Do you fear? Yeah, I would love to say no. I would love to say I've transcended that. No, I do. I fear, I fear more than anything because I have a kid now, so... That's really what's done me in, I think. But you're very public about yep. your story. Because there's two ways to hide. See, at first, <laughs> I didn't take this route. At first, I hid, I hid like crazy. I didn't tell anybody. I only got thrown into therapy because I literally got thrown into it by an ex-boyfriend of mine who I was so, like a typical abuse victim. I didn't know that it wasn't okay to have sex with anyone. And I was like so traumatized that it, and like thinking that everyone around me kept people in the basement and that was normal. That basically it was so difficult to be in a relationship with me at that point that he gave me an ultimatum. He's like, this is not normal. What you're telling me happened to you isn't okay. You need to go to therapy for that. I was like, no, no, I don't. I'm totally fine. But, but I was so, because I have, of course, been programmed to not be able to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. You'll notice that my pattern throughout my life has been get with a man, get with a man, get with a man. I don't even waste 10 minutes to, between one relationship and the next. Because my option of survival is to basically have a guy taking care of me. I took that approach, basically. So the idea of being on my own for any amount of time was more terrifying than being in therapy. So he actually took me to the rape crisis center. And he, like, it was a big scuffle, actually, because I was resisting him. And he actually, in the end, just took me and, like, threw me through the door. Now, you can imagine how well that was received in a rape crisis center, sure. which is full of super angry, like, anti-rapist people. What the hell is that? Oh, yeah, huge uprising. So uh, it's still kind of funny to this day, that, thinking back on that. But they, like, grabbed him, all of them, and threw him up against the wall. They're sure that they're witnessing domestic abuse, right? He's like, she needs to be here. You take her in the back right now. So... So the director of the Rape Crisis Center takes me in the back of the room and is like, why do you think he thinks you need to be here? And so I was like, well... I, and I started sort of telling her a little bit of the stuff that went on with me. And I, like, I watched her face sort of... She was trying to be real professional, but I watched her face go from, like, interest to, like, white. And so she's like, this is... I hope you understand that this is well beyond the capacity that we have at this particular center. This is not what we deal with but I know somebody who does deal with this. And it was like, that was the first time, by the way, that I had even conceptualized of the idea that what I went through wasn't normal and wasn't okay and was maybe even really bad. Like, if you're, if you're used to starving to death in Africa, that's normal for you. Like, if you're used to being part of these groups, that's normal for you. So it's only when I watch the reactions on people's faces that I realize that this is like some other, some, like another level. So I was like, wow, you know, she's acting like this is really bad stuff that I went through. Maybe I do need therapy. And maybe it would be good if I could get some coping skills. So she, she referred me, actually, to this woman who works in town who um, is a rape crisis, or not a rape crisis, um, she's a trauma expert in ritual abuse. 
it's kind of upsetting. I mean, like, all of us need to stop here for a minute and realize, like, if somebody can make their living and, like, honestly has to have patients referred to her, this is how over, overflowed she is with clients, if that can be a specialty, does that tell you how many people in this particular area are suffering from this particular condition? So I ended up getting in with her, and um, to say the least, it was, like, completely life-changing. And it didn't, it didn't feel good at first because it's like it took me three years in therapy to admit that maybe he didn't do this because he loved me. So it's not like in therapy we were digging through all these suppressed memories. What it is is that I, had, I was unwilling to admit that, that what he said wasn't true about his motive. And then it's like, you know, a lot of people would like to say, oh, it probably felt good to be in therapy. No, it was the worst thing in the world. Why? Because when you're going through a, a specific experiment or experience, it's like, you're in survival mode and all those chemicals take over and it's only in retrospect that things start getting as bad as they seem, you know. When you have to revisit trauma is when it gets the worst. That's when I had to admit. It's really not that he was chasing you through the woods because he really loved you and wanted to make sure you could get away from people. You were getting chased by a, a serial killer through the woods as a child. And it's like when you realize that and when you bite off that, you don't want to live, which is the reason that most of us as, as abuse victims, it's the reason I think that most of us buy into the ideas that we're sold by these groups so much, is because if you don't, you're going to die. I mean, that's a survival strategy. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I tell you I'm doing this because I love you, you had better believe that, because the alternative is so bad you can't live through it. So I had, I had done that. It was like I was letting go of the very thing which enabled me to survive that whole situation in admitting, that it, admitting the truth about what was really going on instead of thinking, no, really, it's all for my own good. So that was the worst thing in the entire world. But I did start piecing my world back together again. And after about, I think, two or three years of therapy, I was allowed to go into group therapy where I got to meet other women. And I will never forget the day that I first walked in, and it was a group of, I think, like five or six women. And the one who was sitting right over to my left side, when I walked through the door, both of us started crying because she and I had met each other at a, at a satanic mass. So we had both gotten out of the same scenario, and meeting each other was just like, it was so therapeutic. And it was like amazing to meet these women who were had gone through the same kind of stuff as me, and I, I developed like a serious attachment to them, but I don't talk to them today. Why? Because I went public. That's sort of the reality of my life. And I wasn't planning on doing this, I might add. So I was going through therapy, and when I started talking about ritual child sacrifices and stuff like that, where it turns into murder, they legally have to tell someone. So basically I was put in an ultimatum scenario by my therapist who said, um, either I'm gonna tell the cops or you have to tell the cops, because this is, what we have to do. It's my job. And so I was like, all right, you know, I guess I'm going to do it then. So she called up the chief of police in the area that I grew up in. Now it's a, it's an, a really enormous issue of a case, basically, because technically, unless the FBI has control of a case, each individual report has to be reported with the state it happened in. So if you've got a group like this that operates in multiple states, then it's like not one person, one organization, the government can't get together and do all of it at once. Right. So, and then it's another issue too, because they want exact dates. And I'm, it's like, you know, if I said to you, do you, what's the worst memory you have from your childhood? And like say that it's, say that it's like when some kid kicked you with a soccer ball or something. And I said, what exact date did it happen on? Could you tell me that? 
most people couldn't. So they're they're expecting things of, of of me that I honestly can't do. I can tell you roughly what age I was based on reference points, like what teacher I remember going to, or you know something like that. But <coughs> the exact dates, unless I know the exact date, which I do sometimes, it's difficult to report on. So. Basically, the chief of police came back and sat down with me, and I, for three hours, I recounted as much as I could remember dates for and things for. And yeah, he looked about as traumatized as ever after I ended up saying what I said. And he went back, and this big case was opened, and I spent a while there for a few. I mean, I was getting crime victims reparation money, and. I spent a while there like reporting to them. They would film me while I would talk about what had happened, specific incidents that they would want to know about, looking at mug shots, looking at missing pictures of children, things like that. And then they decided in the end that despite the amount of evidence that I had, which is actually a lot more than most people escape with in my scenario, because of the, the time lapse and the fact that they're really good at, tra at covering their tracks, I had escaped with a pair of jeans I was raped in. I had escaped with a human tooth that I took from a sacrifice. And I gave all of this to them. So despite all of that and the scars, which they did scar mapping on my body and everything, the case was handed over to the district attorney. The district attorney gets to decide whether they have enough tangible evidence to prosecute. See, most people don't understand that that hearsay is not enough reason to prosecute someone. And it's not even enough reason for a search warrant. And it makes sense when you think about it. Like, if you're my neighbor and I say, you've got bodies buried in the backyard, I could do that just to piss you off, just to make the, the cops come over to your house. So just one person saying something is not enough for, for that. As we saw with the recent case where there's like all the girls being kept in the backyard and the cops were sent to the house and they didn't <coughs> even go in the backyard. Right. So, so it wasn't, a, basically the district attorney made the executive decision to keep the case cold where basically it's, it's not like it's closed. It's open, but it's waiting for further evidence or waiting for further people to come forward, essentially. Where is this case at? I think they're keeping it in a North Logan Police Department. Okay. And how, do you, how does it feel that, I mean, you have all this, you know all this happened, you have all these stories. Um, the police chief obviously believes you. I mean, but how does it make you feel to not be able to have a prosecution that they can't go after these people? I go, I go back and forth with that because, see, if anybody knows what I've done basically since that, because the begin in the beginning I was hiding, right, and I didn't want anyone to know. I mean, if you if you look at my driver's license, it'll send you to a police department. Like I didn't want anyone to know where I was at all. I was scared to be in the state, but couldn't leave the state because of programming to not leave the state, right? No. I kind of had this flip happen in me because I, I started, I, at first I wanted nothing to do with my abilities either. I was in professional sports. That's what I wanted to do, just anything that would get me grounded in the physical and I don't want anything to do mm -hmm. with this kind of ethereal crap. So I was in massive resistance to that, but it was like not going away. So at, at a certain point in my healing process, I was like, you know, I have to, I, I can't like live this way in resistance to an aspect of my being forever. So. I started opening back up to this sort of spirituality thing. And I started seeing clients individually for just health issues at that time. It wasn't like mental issues. They're always interrelated. But I would see people who had like cancer or I'd see people who had gastritis or you know, a broken limb or something like that. And um, I would do healing sessions with them. And it occurred to me that a lot of the things that I was saying, you know, that it occurred to me that at, first of all, coming through an experience like that, you learn a lot. 
Like I actually went through an enlightenment experience when I was stuck in this hole in the ground. He used to keep me in it by side his, his backyard. He used to line it with stinging nettle and keep me down in there for hours at a time. So uh, I feel like it's a lot of what I learned coming through that experience that made it so that I, I know these sort of larger truths, I guess. So I started helping people with those things. It's sort of like an amount of wisdom comes out of suffering. So I started to notice it making a difference in people. And so I started thinking about it. And I was like, you know, this way of living is not a way to live at all. Because when I started going through the process with the, with the, with the police, mm -hmm. I started getting death threat letters. And the police department in Salt Lake City actually has those, because that's who I took them to. They were unmarked letters with specific trigger words. And it was just like, I, you know what, is this going to be my life? That's sort of the question I had to ask. Is this going to be my entire life, where I'm just hiding? And I'm ashamed of myself, really, because that's the attitude that most of society takes about people like me, is that we're damaged goods. Like, no guy should date a girl that's that complicated. Why would you ever want to do that? So. It just became not okay, basically, after a while. I was like, A, this is not okay that women like me are treated this way. B, this is not a way to live, this hiding. And so I, it occurred to me, basically, that there are two ways to hide. The first is to go incognito and try to escape and run for the rest of your life. The second is to become so in the public eye that they, it's very difficult to have you disappear without the, somebody figuring out where you've gone. You know what I mean? So I was like, that's probably a better idea. Not only that, I, I'm sort of sick of it. I would sit there in these groups with these women, some of them who are 40, 50, and I'm watching them have the same issues as ever before. One of them got triggered and almost killed her whole family. And I'm like, if this is the best that we're looking at for people who have come out of scenarios this bad, is you know people who are terrified for the rest of their life, people who are always looking over their shoulder, it's not going to work for me. And it's not going to work for me to buy this thing, too, where all of them are like, don't tell anybody. We don't want anybody to know, you know. We, and that's the status quo. And I, like, at this point, I was like, I'm kind of a ballsy person. So <laughs> I was like, that's not going to work for me anymore. To watch these women, not just myself, act like it's okay to not say anything about this crap. That's exactly why these little girls still get taken. So it, it was sort of like, it became this philanthropic thing for me, which is always a self-centered thing to some degree. But I was like... I, you know, if there's, if there's a, like a six-year-old out there that this is still happening to, I won't forgive myself unless I say something. That's sort of where it went to. So I just decided to basically be the poster child for ritual abuse. I was like, if nobody else wants to talk about this stuff, I'll talk about it. Fine, I'm going to tell you that this stuff exists. If you don't want to believe that this exists, then you're part of the problem. That kind of leads me to my next question is there are people out there who don't believe this exists. Mm -hmm. There's going to be people that watch our story that are going to be like... Oh, yeah. She's crazy. Oh, I know. I've seen them. I did, I did that interview. This is what's really frustrated me. It's like, honestly, and this is the case with any kind of abuse situation, the perpetrator asks nothing from you. You can disbelieve what the victim says and you can go back to living your life believing that reality is one way and it can be safe and it can feel good and you don't have to worry about your nine-year-old daughter getting taken and murdered. Now, when you side with a victim and you believe a story that somebody has said like me, it puts people in a moral dilemma. I'm essentially asking people to rewrite their entire version of reality. Now, I understand, of course, being in the position that I'm in today, being a self-help expert, if you will, how difficult it is for people to rewrite their realities. So of course I'm going to run into a serious amount of backlash from people who do not want to believe that this is possible. 
it's a lot easier to look at someone like me and say, this stuff can't possibly exist because then I get to live in a safe world than to say, you know what, this is a super dangerous, messed up world, which is where people go when they hear stories like this. So yeah, a lot of people aren't going to believe. I mean, I've done interviews before that I regret where it's like, I've talked to people who I thought would give a sort of rational overlook of the fact that this ritual stuff is happening and is happening in our communities. And it's turned exactly the opposite way. But, you know, it's, it's actually been, I feel like people are ready for it, you know? Because, like, for example, I did, I did an interview with the Herald Journal, which is the local newspaper in Logan, Utah, mm -hmm. and the editor really messed up with the piece. I'll just tell you that, basically. Um, and he sparked a major controversy in the town, which to one degree is good because it got people questioning. The major controversy was that people looked at that story and some of them were like, Why? okay, this is not okay that you're canvassing a totally mentally ill woman. So they were the ones that didn't believe, but then were mad at him because he made a spectacle of someone who's so obviously mentally ill that they could believe this would happen to them. The whole other side, though, which was interesting, came out and they, they would not let it go of therapists in that particular town who are saying, no, I get about 10 stories a month exactly like this to the T. So, so we're unwilling to buy your story that this is just a story because I'm hearing the same thing in this town. And then other people write in saying, this is my childhood. I grew up in this type of a cult. And I'm like not brave enough to come forward, but this stuff does happen. And so it was like that particular newspaper got just inundated with this super, mm -hmm two-sided type of a reality from the public of saying, oh my gosh, you know, a lot of people do know this is going on and just don't know what the hell to do about it. So I feel like um, what's been interesting for me watching, I don't watch, the, I try not to watch the news, but catching wind of the fact that this is actually coming more into the public view. I mean, you've got how many girls in the past two years have just randomly come strolling out of basements that they've been kept in for years? It's like, the public eyes are starting to open to the idea that this kind of stuff does actually go on. So I feel like we're actually more ready than ever before. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's really good for people in my position who are, have been victimized by these particular groups to not have to cower and not have to be in a state of shame forever. Mm -hmm. you, you talked a little bit about more cases coming out. I actually was in Ohio when um, Gina DeJesus, Amanda Berry were all rescued. and. Um, it, obviously, it's not to the magnitude of your case of what, at least we haven't heard that it was to the magnitude of your, your situation where you were abused, but things like that, do you think things like that are helping, like those sorts of cases? Immensely. The Elizabeth Smart case? Oh, immensely. And it's like, you know, I got to tell you, and it's an interesting reaction, and I know it's a reaction a lot of us have to get out of the groups. It's like we watch, we watch these, and it's like some part of us is set free when those women come forward, and we're like, oh, thank God, but another part of us is intensely jealous. It was the most interesting reaction I watched in myself to the Elizabeth Smart case, because I was just like, first of all, I was so angry because of the amount of money she had, mm -hmm. you know? That's the only reason anyone gave a shit that she disappeared. Right. Let's just be honest, because, I mean, if you're like a little, little foster kid, no one's gonna put your face anywhere. You're not gonna be in multiple states, much less, you're lucky to be in one city, like on, on a gas station window or mm -hmm. something, so. On one hand, I was like, I was like, yes, thank God, like, you know, this stuff is in the public news. On the other side, I was like, you know, I hate her. I hate her because there's so much attention. I hate her because she's glorified. I hate her because, you know, the reality for her is now that she's got her umpteenth book is that people are, you know, that she's released and has gone major. That she's set for the rest of her life because people know about it. And the majority of us are like struggling. I mean, really struggling. 
I'm doing pretty good compared to the majority of people who get out of these scenarios, which are, I mean, for life. They're damaged for life. So, you know, I was just, I just, it's a really interesting reaction to have. But in answer to your question, yeah, I think it's helping. I think with every single case that we see coming out with this, people are more forced to accept the reality that this stuff occurs instead of just discrediting every single one of us, which has been the status quo for mm -hmm. so long. It's really easy to write us off and say we're mentally ill. <laughs> is, is this your coping mechanism, talking and sharing your story, or how are you coping today? Because you obviously, I mean, you relive this every day. It's not something yeah. that you, you wake up and it's miraculously gone. Yeah, I, I wish it was sometimes you're, I mean, you, you spent, what, 13 years of your life, 16 years of your life living this hell. Yes, and now 11 years trying to get over it. <laughs> um, my coping skills. I've surrounded myself with really good people who have been rehabilitating me. I think that's the, the real story. The real story is if you've been hurt so bad, your, your only option of figuring out that it's possible to be treated differently is to find people that treat you differently, and I got really lucky that way. And I also, I don't take a passive approach to my life. It's like, you know, super intel, they pick these groups profile for very intelligent people. And it's like, on one hand, that worked against me. On this hand, it can work for me because I can now really take an active role in my own healing. So I'm really involved in, in like spirituality, super involved in self-help. I'm obsessed with shadow work. Like, <laughs> you know, probing around in my subconscious is an obsession of mine. and. It, I, I also buy into a lot of the philosophies that you can change your reality if you change your mindset. So having, even if you don't believe in that kind of stuff, just what it feels like to know that you might have some kind of say in the way your life goes based on how you're thinking is enough empowerment to at least make some of us feel better. So I do that kind of stuff on a daily basis. I write gratitude journals um, about what I'm happy about in my life. I just try to basically follow my bliss, and it's worked, because focusing on being damaged for the rest of my life is not going to get me anywhere but more damaged, I guess. Where are your parents now? They actually live down in southern Utah. Do you have any contact with them? <laughs> Very little. That's sort of what I'm the most sad about, is that our relationship is completely deteriorated. Is it because of the situation? Yep. I mean, obviously, you didn't have, you said you didn't have a good relationship with your parents yeah. growing up, and that was something that attracted your keeper to you. Yes. Um, do you ever think that your, do your parents believe you and what happened? They believe something happened because it's undeniable. And they know that the, the man, my keeper, was the one who did it. But they don't believe all of my story. Because if they accept that all of it happened, then they have to accept that they were really crappy parents, and they are unwilling to do that, obviously. Because obviously, I mean, my parents are not horrific people. If they would have known this stuff was going on, if they would have known that I was coming home hurt because he hurt me, not because of a horse fall, or you know, knew that I was writing really sadistic, horrific poetry in grade school because I was being hurt, not because I was just sensitive and depressed, they would have stopped it. They missed every red flag basically, and because they missed every red flag, their reality of my life and my reality of my life is entirely different. So there, there can be no, so far, no reconciliation between my parents' version of my childhood and what I'm saying happened in my childhood. And 
the real reason I'm not talking to my parents right now is not because of what happened. I could forgive them any day for what happened before. I could, like today. If they walked through the door and said, you know, we're going to acknowledge that all of the stuff that you say happened, happened, let's find healing, I'd be like, fine. I'll let them off the hook immediately for everything. You know, but what's, the reality is that I don't talk to them because of the fact that there's a rift between what they're willing to accept happened to me and what they are unwilling to own up to, basically, about the past. And that's happening in real time. So, yeah, it's, this is like, this has destroyed every aspect of my family life as well, which was a huge shock to me, I'll tell you that, because when I got away from the group, figured I would tell my parents and everybody around me what would happen, and I'd be welcomed with, like, open arms. I was not even remotely prepared for people to discount that I went through what I was saying that I went through. But this is the typical story. I mean, I'm, I'm like one of eight billion women who experience this exact same thing where when we try to say, hey mom, you know, like it's usually incest where this happens, but it's like other cases as well. A little girl says, hey mom, dad was, you know, having sex with me at night all the way growing up. She's like, no, you were just imagining that. Most of your family's gonna react that mm -hmm. way too. So it's like a whole other level of pain for us is that we're not, it's like the story is not welcomed. I'm like lucky that my parents will admit that for sure there was abuse going on. They'll admit to everything that happened in my teen years. It's just those years when I was really young when they felt like they were trying to be good parents and weren't aware that he was taking me out of my bed, weren't aware that he was taking me out of school. It's really hard for them to like even go to the place where they might have put me in a school that would just be fine like sending me off with someone random. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your, your case is a little bit different in the fact that you still were living with your parents. Yeah. He was taking you out of your home, out of school. He was doing this right under the nose of your parents. Yeah, when he loved that. <laughs> which they don't, which most cases, as you said, aren't like that. Most cases are the child becomes abducted, they become a missing child, yes. and then they're never heard from again. Yes. If, or they're born into the groups <clears throat> under someone. Sure. Yeah. If, you're, if you're a parent, if a parent is watching this, and their child might be going through this in a similar situation, to you, where it's happening right under their nose, their child is still living with them, still coming home. What sort of red flags should they be looking for? What, oh my God! Like how, and how does a parent know? And what should a parent do? You know, instead of me saying what a parent do, it's sort of like what a parent shouldn't do. The only <coughs> way that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat you. These people will not target healthy families; they target unhealthy families. So they're only going to target children who are, to some degree, isolated from the rest of the group. Now that isolation can be a physical one, like we see where, where a parent has to work so much that their kid's like meandering around after hours. Mm -hmm. Or it can be, like in my case, an emotional rift between parents and child, which makes the, 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 the you know, they can feel that in a second, perpetrators can. So what I would say is don't create the conditions in the first place for that to happen. If you have a kid you don't relate to, then really you got to try to relate to them. Most parents don't really try to understand their children because to do that they sometimes have to admit that they're doing something wrong and most parents are like a lot more interested in in defending the idea that they're good parents than opening themselves up to the possibility that they're creating a condition which is painful for the child, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say like the closer you can be to your children, the more that you can talk to them and understand them specifically and the, the earlier you can talk to them about what's appropriate versus not appropriate, the better. I mean, my parents talked to me about sex when I was 9, 10, 11, and I had already been being raped for like four years. So it was a little too late. So I feel like 
you know, if we're doing the right thing, it's that we're making the preparatory things, um, we're doing the preparatory things correctly instead of like remedying the situation after it's already occurred. Major red flags for abuse, cutting is a huge one. Um, self-abuse is a, like any kind of self-abuse, not just cutting is a huge red flag for abuse. Um, another good one would be like dissociative states. Uh, kids who are getting abused tend to have a very difficult time with with staying in reality. You may, they may have an issue focusing, or they may be so hyper-focused. That's another thing that they do to try to cope, is they'll like hyper-focus on something and they won't want to watch you or listen to you. It's almost like an autistic type of behavior. Another thing is they'll, they'll have frequent, especially girls, if they're getting sexually abused, that you're going to see lots and lots of urinary tract infections. Their immune system is going to get targeted first. They'll have a lot of weird sicknesses. Headaches are a super common one, too. The kids will just have unexplicable headaches all the time, and that's another big tip off there, too. You'll, you'll see this like major withdrawal and sort of sadness happen in them, you know. It's gotten to the point, it's difficult for me, of course, because you could probably look up like lots of signs that your kid's getting <coughs> abused somewhere, but from the standpoint of somebody who's in my position where I've, I've been in that scenario and I've been around it, I can recognize it in 10 seconds. You can feel it on people when they've been hurt by someone, you know. And th I think the issue, too, with parents is that they're, uh, what I would say is don't latch on to the idea that you know everything about the people that you are spending time with like friends and, and family members, because sometimes we are so addicted to buying into a facade. That means our family's wonderful and family is everything, that we can't recognize when the uncle's doing something or when the dad is doing something or when the aunt is doing something or when the sister or sister-in-law is doing something. So I think that for a lot of us, it's the fact that we have this addiction to maintaining an idea which makes us feel good, that we have closed our eyes to the ability to even see these things going on in the first place. So uh, what I would say to people is uh, be willing to question everything you think, I guess. <laughs> you've got to really be open. Otherwise, you're not going to see this stuff because it's not going to benefit you too. I mean, think about it. Would you rather believe that your brother is abusing your daughter or would you rather believe that he's a good guy and that something else is wrong with your daughter? It's a lot easier to believe that this stuff doesn't go on than does go sure. on. But if somebody is watching this and they're living this life, oh they're, they're in a position. What, oh <laughs> what would you What would you say to them? How, what, how, how do they escape? How do they get back to normalcy, so to speak? It's just so. <laughs> for anybody who's going through this type of a group, it's like what I'm gonna say is gonna fall on deaf ears because there is. When you control a child, I mean, look at an elephant, right? You tie an elephant who's a baby to a giant trunk and he can't move the trunk. When that elephant is old enough that he could move it like that, he's not going to move. So we're in that same kind of position psychologically with these people who don't understand that you're, you're perpetrators, even though they could do anything they wanted with you when you were children, they can't do that to you when you're older. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I would say is run as fast as you can. Find a scenario, and you know that there's those loopholes. All of us have dreamed about it where you just, like, if, it doesn't matter whether it's a stranger, just run to whoever the first person that you see is that could possibly hide you from this type of a scenario. And I would have it be somebody outside the family, especially if you're in part of this, the group is like part of the family dynamic. I would have it be somebody completely unrelated. Now, people who are watching who are part of these groups are gonna know what I mean, because you get so adept at reading people when your survival depends on them that you can kind of feel what person's gonna be protective and what person isn't, you know what I mean? 
also, yeah, I think I'd say that about escaping. I would just tell them to get away, like however just they can. Just run. Because it doesn't occur to you when you're in the middle of it that you can, but you can. You can. <laughs> you can, because like part of the rule is that they don't get to go get you. I mean, that's if you want me to tell you the main reason that I'm not back there because they haven't loaded me in a truck is because that's against the programming rules. We have to be like dogs who come back home, otherwise they don't have total control. And if they ever do get you, they're going to kill you. So basically run as fast as you can and run to the first place. If you can find a police department, that's even better. Because, <laughs> I mean, now it wasn't like it was when I was younger. If you walk through the door and you're like, I'm getting tortured, this is what's happening, I'm getting abused, they're after me, your, police, your average policeman who's heard about this stuff already is going to be like, all right, we're not going to... Um, release you. We're going to call a child psychologist. We're going to like not let you leave here until we make sure that's not happening. Sure. So let's hope that would be the reaction. <laughs> you, you mentioned before the interview that this is happening a lot in Idaho, Utah. You mentioned Boise. What should I as the average person be looking for to know that this is going on? Where does this happen at? And what sort of things are happening? The rural areas are the worst. If, you're, if anybody's doing like a typical sacrifice or something, they can't be miles and miles out. And so usually what it is is they'll pick a side canyon somewhere that has like an overhang or a cave or something like that, and they'll do the rituals there. Or else they'll pick private property. Let's say that a member of the group has like a, a huge, like a huge place property with fields. They'll pick those kinds of places. Um, what I would say, I'm not really worried about you specifically because people who work in the news have kind of had their eyes open to a lot of the messed up stuff that's happening. What I would basically say to anybody is that you got to look for anything that's that's abnormal. And I would say report anything, report anything that that even remotely triggers you this you're this might not be okay type of thing. Because like for example, when I was younger, I was 11 years old. One of the things that my my particular perpetrator used to do all the time was to keep me in these these bird ties that were like um, sort of like horse hobbles or else these have you ever seen like what falconers use? It's like really thin rope that mm -hmm. they tie. So he would hog tie me with my wrist to my ankles, and I'd spend days that way sometimes, and he wouldn't feed me. But this one time, it was like probably 11 o'clock in the morning, and middle of the workday, and he took me out of the back of his truck and put me hog tied in this parking lot with tons of people around. I mean, like tons. It was lunch hour. There was a group of three women at this particular point who were walking into the subway station store right by there. They passed me. All of them watched me hogtied on the floor. And they looked at him, and they looked at me, and they looked at him, and looked at me. And then they just kept walking. I know that in their minds, the part of them was like, this is not OK. But we've got this don't interfere in other people's lives type of attitude. Now, that one, one of those women calling a police officer could have potentially saved the, the next how many years of my life? You eight were 11. Mm -hmm. So the next eight years of my life that I spent tortured could have been prevented by one of those women calling in. So it's like if you see something bizarre, if you see a parent that's treating a child bizarrely, don't assume that they're, they're the parent. That's another thing, too. People assumed that he was my parents, like, a lot. And he would tell them that, this is my daughter, when he wasn't my parent. So, so we like to assume a lot when we see things that, are, that don't fit in with how we feel, because mm -hmm. we don't like to trust how we feel. Now, I would honest to God say, like, it, it's worth it to call a police office eight times and be sort of off base about what's going on for the one time when you call and it's like, oh my gosh, we just found Elizabeth Smart, <laughs> you know? That's what I would say. Because, I mean, unless you trip across something like that, you're not going to know this stuff exists. They're doing it in their basements. They're picking kids who are not going to be 
recognized. And if they show up on a missing poster, they're just going to be one of a million names. You should go look up those figures if you ever want to get really creeped out, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said that he mentioned to people that you were his daughter a lot. Oh, yeah. Why not speak up when you were, when these people were around and say, no, help me? Well, because, so I'll tell you, one of the very first programming sessions that I went through, aside from that one where I was bonded to him, was another scenario where I was yet again put on electroshocks and basically they can use, you, they can do this just by putting you in like an isolation tank, which they like using, or they can do it just by depriving your senses, which they like doing, or they can use one of these, these medications which put your mind in a more suggestible state, like ketamine, where essentially he walked me through a visualization. So we all know that, that like if you monitor a person's heart rate and you hook them up to a guided meditation, say I was going to say, okay, now, now you're going to imagine a nice peaceful meadow, right? If I walk you through that, it will be very real to your mind. You're going to be in that meadow. You're going to be touching the grass. You're going to be feeling the breeze. What they do in these groups is they use meditations and visualizations, along with breathing techniques, to induce immense amounts of trauma and to program the subconscious mind. So one of the first programs that was done on me like that, he had me breathing and then go through an elaborate visualization where he was walking me through my home having just told, okay, you just told people about me and you just told people who you really are. So what do you see hanging from the rafters? I shrugged my shoulders. He goes, do you see that that's your mother? Do you see that she's missing her skin? Someone has taken it all off of her body because you said something. Do you see that her blood is all over the floor? Go touch it. So they were walking these children like they were walking me basically through elaborate scenarios about exactly what will happen. See, it's not enough for like, these groups to say, we're going to kill everyone, and to just say that. They actually walk you through the scenario of you know, my mother being, having her skin filleted off of her body, hung from the rafters, having my father decapitated, having my brother be eaten and disemboweled, like all of that, basically. I was walked through that step by step. My brother was the real one that he used against me. Because they were like, we're going to take him if you say anything. So why would you not believe that? is the question for a small child. So I believed every word he said and was completely convinced that that would happen. And then when you get older and you are participating more in the group, it's programming sessions about how the cops are going to come after you. You're going to be stuck in a jail cell forever. So the last thing you want is that. So now you're bonded with them and you're sort of against the good guys mm -hmm. type of a thing. So that's why I didn't say anything. And I didn't, I didn't know that he was wrong about that too because that was what it wasn't just that he told people that he told me that he was my real father your mother's a whore she slept with me and i'm your real father that's why you don't look like your real dad you look like me and so it was confusing too because my parents would say things growing up see like my parents number one joke when i was growing up is that the beeswaxes have our baby it's the fact that when i was rolled in when i was younger um, and when i was first born they rolled me into the the delivery room and the hispanic staff at the place that I was born couldn't pronounce my last name and so they wrote beeswax and so the joke forever growing up was the beeswaxes have our baby that there was some switch there and you know it was super funny to my parents who didn't like understand me or get along with me super sad to me like soul crushing as a child to have that joke be spread around as a kid because it means that you know it sort of does plant a seed like I don't right. fit into the family and so they're like we don't know where those like really Asian looking eyes came from and stuff like that, and, and my perpetrator was really quite handsome. He's not, it wasn't like this decrepit old person that you'd expect, and so 
when he would bring up stuff like that to me, like, look at our eye shape is the same, or, you know, I had dark hair, and everyone else in your family was born with light hair. I was the only person in my family born with dark hair, so I'm like, all right, maybe he really is my real dad type of a thing. I had no reason to doubt that either, especially given that I didn't, I mean, he was capitalizing, like they all do. People who are majorly successful perpetrators, they capitalize on truths, and that's why they get so good at telling lies. If you, t if you tell eight truths in one lie, the person's going to accept the lie. So he was basically working on what he already saw present, like I said, to do exactly what he did. I had no reason to doubt that. So if, if he was like sitting there like he was often with me at a cafe and would say something like that, I had no reason to come up against it. Besides, there's consequences coming up against him. Oh, big ones. You, you obviously believe this happened to you, truly believe. Do you ever doubt that maybe... This is just some sort of nightmare that you had and you've just relived it? Or do you ever doubt that this happened to you? No. Ever? No. Because you know. I'll put it this way. Give me the last birthday party you remember. Oh my gosh. Probably my sister's. Yeah. Do you doubt it happened? No. Same thing. It's not, this, these memories are not obscure. It's not like I'm grasping at them. They're just as real as what did you eat yesterday? You can remember that. You may not be able to tell me what the person in the fifth row was wearing. Right. But it's like, you know, people love to think that, tra that everybody questions trauma memory, but I'm like, it's somebody asking me, like, how do you know it happened? It's the same as me asking you, how do you know that you had a birthday party when you were five years old? I don't believe you that happened. What, wait, what? <laughs> you know, sure. people only question memory when it when they don't want to believe the reality of something. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. And you're you've accepted this, and so you're willing to not think you're willing to admit that this happened because you've accepted it. Yeah, I mean, me saying that this didn't happen is like that's lying to myself. Mm -hmm. The same as somebody trying to convince themselves that they didn't go to the grade school they went to. It's like it, it would sure. be that extremity of lying to myself. Sure. Do you have, does, has this caused you to have trust issues with people to... Yes. Oh yeah, I'll admit it. I mean, I'm, I'm horrible at trusting people. But I'm also horrible at living a guarded life because it feels like crap, so... <laughs> so, yeah. And you went public because you wanted to, you wanted to hide, but your way of hiding was to go public so that if you went missing, yes. it was like, oh, we're still. I, well, I wanted to hide, but I also wanted to, I also wanted to be like the forerunner for other women mm -hmm. to be brave enough to do it. So I mean, when Doug reached out to you and, and you agreed to do this interview, what was your reasoning for agreeing to do it? You know, at first I was like, he's going to be just like the Herald Journal. They're just going to try to discredit me. I don't know. But I was like, I didn't have that feeling. I know that I talk about feelings a lot, but I honestly believe that you got to trust your feelings because I didn't so much when I was younger, mm -hmm. and that's what got me into so much trouble. So now it's like I try to listen to my emotions, and when I was trying to listen to my emotions about this particular interview, I didn't have this horrible feel to it, and I was like, you know, I, I'm going to become okay if he wants to discredit me and basically do exactly what the Herald Journal did and make me seem like some completely raving lunatic. I have to be okay with that because I have to understand the motive that people would have for doing that. Mm -hmm. And I have to also understand that it doesn't change my day-to-day -day life. Like honestly, what I'm doing for a career now, regardless of what reporters say or don't say, 
having people write me letters who are part of these groups and say, thank God you said something because I don't have the bravery, but it's like you've saved some part of my life saying this. It's like I still have that, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's still worth it, regardless of what people in the mainstream say. So on the off chance that that wasn't the case, which it didn't feel like it was the case, I was like, you know, maybe there will be somebody in the area, because honestly, your particular news station that you're coming from is in the area this stuff goes on. So if there's somebody watching this, maybe maybe one person will be saved. Sure. And you don't, you've never once during this interview named your perpetrator, mm -hmm. your keeper. I've named him in the police reports. Here's the issue. And this was like, this, this was explained to me like very explicitly by the police, both the police department and by like separate attorneys and people that if I name the perpetrator publicly, mm -hmm. basically, without the trial going through, sure. right now, not only does that flush the pheasants, what that means is that basically it gives them opportunity to stash evidence, but also um, I can be sued for defamation of character. Right. So that's the only reason that I don't. So it's not any sort of trying to protect him, it's just the legality of the situation. Yeah. Now I've, I've gone into, because I've become so incredibly spiritually active, I've gone through a hell of a lot of process. I mean, we're looking, you're, when you're looking at me, you're looking at 11 years going of dealing with this type of stuff on a daily basis. Mm. I've come to a very interesting space of forgiveness, not yet for my parents, but for him. It took me years. I mean, I went through years of wanting to burn him, shoot him, like so much rage. I can't even tell you. I wanted to burn my whole childhood to the ground. But after going through that process, it's, what's interesting is that I got a, a front row seat, basically, to the amount of suffering that these people go through that end up in these types of situations. I don't actually agree with the people who are coming up with these theories that psychopathy is something which is inborn and genetic. I don't believe that. Because I got a front row seat to more than a few of these people. And the reality is, is that they come from extremely traumatic situations. And that's what turns them off emotionally and makes them not only want to, but capable of doing the things that they keep doing. So when you get a front row seat to the suffering which creates the very condition that makes these people the way they are, I can't hate them with the same amount of vehemence, I guess, as I did to, to begin with. So in my soul progression, basically, as I would say it, I don't desire him to come to immense amount of harm. You know, it's not like I'm like rooting for there to be justice. There's no justice in somebody getting put away. The justice is in somebody living a happy life. The justice is in somebody getting out of a situation like that and finding a way to forgive and to make something beautiful. There's no justice that can be found in somebody sitting in a jail cell. So regardless of whether I, I, mean, I don't want other people to go through this kind of stuff, but I don't have immense amounts of pain that there's no justice in the situation. I feel immense amounts of justice in the situation. I've done a very good job with my life. You've forgiven your yeah. keeper. Oh, yeah. But not your parents. No. When you hear that, it almost seems backwards. Like you would forgive your parents because your parents didn't know what was going on. Your perpetrator is the one that inflicted this harm and pain on you. Yep. Explain to me, explain to me the, I, the logic, I guess, behind that forgiveness that you've well, come to. If you want to use a psychological term, it's called bystander trauma. Usually what you'll find is that if there is a perpetrator and a bystander, the person will find it the hardest to forgive the bystander. Mm -hmm. And 
I, it's no different with me because it's like I've had to sort of accept the fact, especially recently, that this wouldn't have happened unless there was already pain there with my parents and I. This wouldn't have happened if we were a really healthy, happy family together. I really belonged and everything. So, um, yeah, that's way harder for me to forgive all of that. I mean, I can, I can under, I can at least relate more to his mentality being so traumatized as a child and then ending up this way. What's difficult for me is watching people who are, quote, supposed to love and protect me fail at it over and over and over and then continue to fail at it now that I'm an adult. That's the real reason that we're not talking to each other. And that's why it's so difficult for me to just forgive it. It's not because of what they did, because of what they're doing. I mean, what do you, how are you supposed to forgive somebody that will look you in the face and say, well, we're willing to accept that something definitely happened, but not all of it. Sure. It's like, I mean, it's like, I, I like to compare it sometimes to telling, telling fundamentalist Christian parents that you're gay. It's like, if your parents say, well, okay, but we don't really believe that people can be gay, so we're not gonna accept all of that story. Then they, it's like some part of you can't really fully be seen by these people. And I mean, my parents would love it. It's because of their own pain. I will admit, my I mean, my parents' life was turned upside down with me. It was, their life turned to hell because of what happened, too. But it's, the, it's just this, oh, it's like, if not all of me can be seen by them and they want me to move forward, like anyone would, let's just get over it and let's just move on. But the reality of acute trauma like I went through is that my reality is I don't just get to move on. I mean, I still, I still suffer the aftermath of it all the time. I still, I'm learning how to pull myself out of seizures just now, but I still have dissociative seizures. I get triggered by things randomly. I can't go watch movies because the previews might have something which is, you know, reminds me of the past and then I'm gone, basically, lost consciousness. I have immense relationship trouble. So it's like, you know, I, it doesn't work to just move on from something like that because it's so much of a part of your life. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like if, you, if, you're, if you've lost your limbs at war, people say, oh, just forget it and move on with your life. And you're like, well, I could, but I can't really walk upstairs anymore. So it's a little bit hard when you have the reminder 24 hours a day. And when, when your parents call and say, how was your week? I can't tell them the truth because the truth is it was really bad because I had to relive this you know, old trauma that happened. And I'm struggling because my son has hit this certain age that triggers me. And, I'm panicked about him getting taken. When you can't share those kinds of things with your family, it's a little bit difficult to have like a really close relationship. Sure. But then, so that's why I'm still I'm working to try to forgive them. But I also don't believe that forgiveness can be forced. That's something which I think a lot of people should know, mm -hmm. especially if they've gotten away from groups and are watching this right now. Like you can't you cannot force forgiveness. We can use the word I forgave my perpetrator or I forgave my parents. The reality is is that you can't force that. It's an organic experience which happens in and of itself. And the minute you can look back and approve of what basically happened in your life is the moment you've forgiven somebody. Until then, it hasn't happened. So you can't just say, I forgive them and have it be true. And you have a son now. Mm -hmm. Does he know what happened to you? Um, How old is he? Not every detail, he's five. Okay. Not every single detail, obviously, because I don't want to traumatize the hell out of him, but I don't believe in keeping secrets from him. I mean, he knows that mommy gets triggered. He knows that mommy loses consciousness sometimes. And, and you know, he, he's really cute. Like the other day we were watching this, um, 
a program on dinosaurs, and there was a, like a, a gory scene in the dinosaur movie, and he jumped across the couch and covered my eyes. He's like, he's like, mommy shouldn't see this. Mommy shouldn't see this. Push pause. And so, oh. on one half, it's like one half of me feels bad. I'm like, oh my gosh, like sad that my son has to deal with this. On the other side, it's like because he understands what's going on with mommy, he is actually turning into a more well-rounded person. Besides that, I mean. It doesn't make sense to me to lie to my kid. Yeah. If I'm having trouble, I'll say to them, Mommy's just having a hard time because I had a really bad time when I was a little kid. When I was a little kid, people hurt me really bad. He understands that. So, so at this phase, instead of going into gruesome details, we're at that phase. He knows that Mommy was hurt when she was little. He knows that Mommy has trouble when she remembers certain things, and that's about where we are. <laughs> so you have a long ways to go in your recovery. Yeah. You're, will you ever, do you ever feel like you'll be fully recovered? I would love to think that it's possible, but I think if I'm attached to the idea of being in a completely healthy state, then there's some aspect of me that rejects where I am right now, and it's super not self-loving. So uh, rather than feel the pain of like having to get to a perfected state, I would rather say, you know, I don't know if it's ever going to get completely good, and I'm okay with it because every single time I go through a new thing that I have to heal from, my life gets just a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I, I have a long way to go though. Yeah. Sure. And you said, <laughs> you said that a lot of this stuff happened in our area, the Boise area. Yes. How prominent is it in our area? I don't know exactly because it's like from, from your perspective, all we have is our perspective. And I don't have an objective perspective because I didn't have that life. Mm -hmm. I lived in the group. So from my perspective, it felt like everyone was doing it. Because I was surrounded by people who kept kids in their basements and, and were, like showed up at these rituals and stuff like that. And the large majority of the issue of me getting away from these groups is that I was afraid that everyone was doing this. So I can't give you an objective picture of how many times this happens in specific areas or how many people are involved. Um, but I can tell you it's more than most people could possibly imagine because of the fact that most people don't know what happens at all. And if I'm going to, all I can tell you is that basically if I, I attended a, a black mass here in the Salt Lake City area actually, where there was over 100 people at that particular gathering. So to me, even though that doesn't rival the numbers of like the Mormon church or anything, even remotely close, it's enough people to like have an issue with it. Do you still have any sort of involvement? Oh, God, no. No, I'm like, I spend most of my time trying to get as far away from that as possible. I've not done a good job because I haven't left the state yet, but I'm planning on it. <laughs> God. So would you consider leaving the state running from the problem, or...? I've asked myself that a million times. I think some part of me wants to get out of here, yeah. but. I think the other part of me is really excited to feel what it might feel like to be out of an area where there's triggers everywhere. Mm -hmm. you're, you're actually defining my internal struggle with my healing process. Is this running away or is it self-loving to be in a place where it's like I don't have the cowboy culture or the Mormon church or any of these triggers basically mm -hmm. for everything that went on? <laughs> By leaving the state you question, is this running away, is this good for me? Are you going to be able to achieve your goals of helping other people in a place like California 
where it may not be as prominent as it is here. Like yeah, you I think, what? I think I am. Thanks to the information age, I don't need to be in the same place as people anymore. <laughs> yeah. And you have a very large following yes. of people. Um, but I'm sure you get a lot of hate mail. Oh, yeah. What is that like for you? It sucks. It's super painful. I, I honestly, I would love it. I would love it. I would be lying, but I would love it if I could sit down in front of this interview and I could be like, you know, I am in a place where I understand people who hate me completely. And I'm like, hell no. I get that stuff. And that, sometimes I cry. And other times I'm like, am I doing any good? I should just quit. I get, you know, that sort of body flush of fight sure. or flight. Yeah, it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant at all. But it's also not motivating enough to make me quit. <laughs> what sort of things are these haters saying to you? What are these letters? What, what, give me an example of something that would be in one of these letters. Well, actually, what's ironic is most of it has nothing to do with my childhood at all. It's mostly to do with my, what I'm currently teaching people. And what I teach people is that you're, you're basically, so whether you want to call it God or the infinite being, I feel like all religions are basically talking about the same essence, mm -hmm. which is this infinite consciousness. We could call it God or whatever we wanted. So I teach people that are not, they're not separate from it. So you don't need to go into a church and get a priest to give you your connection to this thing, that you are innately an extension of that thing, which we call God. So. Because I teach that, it's a major issue for a lot of the mainstream Christian community because of the fact that Christians essentially believe that to like to, to can, it's sort of like vanity. To consider yourself akin to God to some groups is a sin worse than murder. Okay. So it's that which I get the most hate mail for. It's basically like you're basically telling people that they're gods and that is a sin and you need to die and your son needs to be taken away from you. And, but most of my hate mail comes from that group. <laughs> so you have a son. You're remarried, or you're you are married. Is, how has your childhood and your the experiences that you went through impacted your marriage and your relationship with your husband? Oh my god, horribly. My relationships are probably the sector of my life that was impacted the worst by everything I went through, because I d I mean, you're definitely so basically this is how it goes. The way that you felt in your childhood home and the way that you felt with the adults growing up becomes your subconscious definition of love. Now, if we look back at my childhood, my definition of love, therefore, on a subconscious level, regardless of what my conscious mind says love should be, is, is being forsaken, being injured, being ostracized. <laughs> yeah, I could just, I could give you a whole list. So I tend to gravitate towards relationships. I have tended to gravitate towards relationships where that's exactly what I feel. And it's been like acutely painful. And it's like, I, you know, I would really love, it makes everything more complicated too. I mean, it's not the greatest date strategy, right? To walk up and be like, hi, this is what I went through in my childhood. And dealing with me means dealing with seizures, means you're gonna have to protect me from a lot of images, means you're dealing with a public profile. I could get found at any moment. Means that if you're gonna have a kid with me, that kid's now in trouble, you know, because they're gonna be a target for these groups and for people as well. It's like, a lot of people would be like, um, where's the check? <laughs> <laughs> so. I think, yeah, relationships have been incredibly difficult for me. Plus the level of distrust I feel for people in general. Also, there's lots of sexual issues and it's not easy for people who have been sexually abused to like suddenly turn around and love sex again. So 
or even like, you know, a lot of what sex does is it hypersexualizes women. And so for them to learn healthy sex versus unhealthy sex is super difficult. And so that's a relationship issue. So, yeah, it's not been easy at all. How would you describe your life right now? If you had to sum up your life in one or two words right now, how would you describe it? A continual, I guess it would be like a continual quest for happiness. Are you happy now? Depends on the day. <laughs> so you go through influx? Big time. Yeah, I'll have, I'll have one day where I'm like, you know what, I see, this is really what's most common. I'll go through a day or two days where I can see the whole picture. That means this really beautiful picture where I, I got into the scenario when I was younger that tortured the hell out of me. I learned some incredible things about human nature and about the world and the universe because of it. After getting out of that and healing myself, I'm now able to help people in a way that most people can't do, you know? And I'm, I'm now spreading that kind of wisdom, awareness, empathy, and compassion into the world. And I can see, like, the whole picture that that makes. It's a really beautiful picture. It's not just tragedy to triumph. It's like literal, like, it's life alchemy, basically. Life transformation. Then the next day, it's like, you know, I have the umpteenth relationship argument, or I seizure again because I turned on the TV and our society is so desensitized to horror films that I saw an ad for a horror film. And unlike people who watch that for fun, that was my reality. So I know exactly what it feels like to be mm -hmm. kept in a cage and have somebody, you know, be threatened to cut your arms off. So it's a lot more real to me. And let's say that triggers me. And now suddenly I'm back in my childhood reliving it, which is what PTSD is like. It's the, um, when your amygdala basically hijacks the rest of your brain, which is what it does for post-traumatic stress. It's not that you're just remembering it. You're literally living in it. It's like I, sometimes I will look out at my house and the whole layout of the house will change back into the layout of my childhood abuser's home. So I'll go through a day like that where it's difficult for me to you know, move around and I start questioning why am I even doing this? Like why didn't I just kill myself? I regret everything about my life. You know, I would take it back in a minute type of thing. So it's, it's still I get the swing depending on what my days go like where one minute is like the most beautiful thing in the world in the next minute i hate everything about my life mm -hmm. yeah. how are you today how are you like right now in this moment what is your what are you feeling what's your mood sort of sorrow has it changed throughout this interview or did you come in here with a different mood yeah i came in like more sort of professional okay i'm going to talk about my childhood again like i do so much the sort of reliving what it felt like to be in that scenario, yeah. And and now it's progressed to sorrow. And when you say sorrow, sorrow for feeling sorry for yourself, or what? What is that? That sorrow, sort of, at, at like what what was lost, I guess, is sort of a common feeling for me. Because it's it's like there's sort of a fantasy of what your childhood would have could have been like, and. When you relive what it did go like, you uh, somehow acknowledge the death of a fantasy. I mean, your childhood was obviously stolen from you. Yeah. And that's, that's what is upsetting to you, is that? Yeah, because I don't even know what that means. I mean, when people say, this has been an issue with my healing as well, when people say the word play, I don't even know what that means. That's another, by the way, thing people can watch with their children. Kids who are abused become hyper 
obsessively perfectionistic. So instead of watching normal play behavior, you, f you see abnormal play behavior. So either they'll be reenacting abuse or else they'll be doing, you know, I wish I was doing too, but they'll be doing, you know, like the same thing over and over again, which is like if you watched my childhood, um, I have some videos of my, myself as a child and it's just so depressing to watch, you know, because people who are, are not, don't know what they're looking at would say, wow, she's really dedicated. People who know what they're looking at are like, this is super not okay. You know, the fact that this girl for the last 20 minutes has been trying to perfect the exact same like pirouette turn on ballet shoes and can't smile type of thing. So I get, I get sad that I don't understand what fun is. I still struggle with that immensely. Because like life is very serious to me still, <laughs> you know. It's like I can't. I feel like there's there's a whole range of like emotions that a lot of people can access easily. Like they go to the park with their friends and they can feel that relaxation, or they go somewhere and they can feel joy. And I feel like I don't. I can't access those emotions yet, even though I've been trying. You've smiled. You've teared up. Mm -hmm. You've kind of laughed. You've obviously had some frowns. Um, your realm of emotions change a lot yeah. and is that something that you experience every day or is it this this interview that we've had no it's every day yeah yeah and is it a an immediate switch i mean i know you talked about you were trained to just snap your fingers and come back to this like super focused sort of thing is it sort of like that where you're going through the day really happy and then just all of a sudden like with the snap of a finger you become angry or upset or sad or whatever the yes. that next mood is but yes but it's always according to it's always got a trigger that's how you know that it's it's basically like it's not another like bipolar type of a mm -hmm. thing it's that based on whether i'm exposed to one thing or another thing yeah i'm like it's immediately influenced by that does that cause you to live a sheltered life it used to I spent my life trying to avoid triggers. I mean, now it's like, it's obvious, don't go to a, a, a movie theater if the previews are going to be scary type of a thing. Mm -hmm. I don't like actively try to avoid things because you can't. There are so many triggers on a day-to-day -day basis. I can avoid them if, if I wanted to, and it's not really a life that's worth living anyways. But I live a more sheltered life than I think some people do. I mean, we have to be a little bit careful as me, and more so than the average person because of those associations, especially when I'm working. When I'm in like work mode, I don't want to be pulled back into like a six-year-old state. So, <laughs> so yeah. Sure. If there was one message that you could give anybody that might be going through this, what would that message be? There's a reason for everything. I think that was the one question I had in my mind the whole time that I was going through. Where I was. See, there I go. And bringing tissues, even. <laughs> I promised myself I was going to make it through without crying. It didn't work. So you feel like what happened to you happened for a reason? Yeah. It took me like so many years to see that, but yeah, I spent I spent the majority of my time like, and also I would say that the reason that this is happening is not the one you think it is right now, because most of us who go through these scenarios we th think that 
you know, it's happening because we deserve it, or it's happening because we're evil, or some stupid thing like that. But. Sorry, I'm like. You're okay. resistant to my emotions, I know. You're okay. I feel really, like, horrible when I break down in front of people, because I still am afraid of being, like, that much vulnerable, you know? Sure. Do um, you, do you know what you, or do you have a belief of the reason why this yeah, happened? Yeah, I think I was, I think I was meant to bring in new information to this world about compassion and getting over things. I don't think that we know how to do that. I don't think that we know what forgiveness really is, and I don't think we know why these things go on. And I feel like I have this amazing ability now, and I'm watching it with people every day. Not only to teach people why this stuff occurs, but also what to do to prevent it. And I think that more than that, I can one of the major purposes is for me to be like an example for people who, especially women, who are going through these types of really painful things to know that, you know what, this old paradigm of the fact that you're just damaged goods for the rest of your life is not true. So I feel like the main purpose for this is this like beautiful image of life transformation which can occur and genuine forgiveness, not just feigned forgiveness, not just forget and get over it. Um, like true, like soul-altering forgiveness. I feel like I can teach that to the people of the world now. So yeah, I think that there's there's purpose. Every time that somebody goes through something, there's purpose. When we look at something that's super traumatic happening in our lives and we just can't understand for the life of us why the hell, it's like the why me question. It just means that we haven't gotten far enough away from the circumstance to see the bigger picture. And what was torturing me when I was going through everything is just that I mean, I racked my brain for why the hell this could be. Why, if it was the why me? Why the hell is this happening to me? Why am I the one? And I came up with a lot of painful explanations to that. So what I would tell people is that don't believe the, you know, A, suspend judgment. There's always a bigger picture and a bigger reason why you would be going through these things. And if you're telling yourself a painful story, like I'm going through it because I'm evil or I'm going through it because it's bad, it's not the reason that there's always a much more beautiful picture of why things happen to people the way they do that you can't see when you're in the middle of it. You can only see it when you put one foot in front of the other in the direction of healing. Then it's like organic. You don't have to even look for the purpose. It just falls in your lap one day and you're like, oh my God, I get it. All of it. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that you that you want to talk about, that you want to share? Is, is there a message that you have? Mm. Let me think. I think that we're in a time where we have to open up to these a lot darker aspects of the human psyche. We have to admit that these things go on and we have to provide ways for both sides of the equation to heal. This is going to be a main goal of my life. It's 
there's healing that needs to happen on both sides of the gun. We need to basically create a way in our society for people who are perpetrators and people who are victims of perpetrators to get healing for the conditions which they're experiencing, which are causing them to inflict this kind of pain on other fellow men. So, you know, the greater message is it's no kind of justice to condemn either party that what I'm calling for is a, a mass movement of healing and integration where these people on both sides of the gun are having access to ways that they can find happiness and healing, which we're not providing for them when they get thrown to jail cells and we're not providing for them when we get thrown to society and now we're damaged goods. I would want society to be a lot more adult and welcome both people with open arms into a space of let's do something about this. Let's not just put you in a corner and hope that that doesn't touch my family. Oh, it's touching your family, it's touching everybody's lives. This idea that we are separate from other people is an absolute illusion. If a girl gets taken, it does affect you, whether you're conscious of it or not. So I think this is our time to be responsible as a human race in general, regardless of our denominations. We should all just sort of come together and realize that we all want collective healing for people. I mean, it's like if you, if you were to take an airplane and fly over to like the Middle East right now, those people don't want any different than we do. They want the same stuff. So if we could just like remove this, the lines that we keep putting between ourselves and other people enough to really care and enough to help people, then this kind of stuff wouldn't happen in the first place. People can only do this kind of stuff when they're separated enough that nobody cares when they're separated enough that no one notices. You had said earlier that you were, you had self-mutilation, you had the scars on your ribs. Do looking at those scars every day, what is that like for you? I actually like them. <laughs> I don't know, it sounds kind of funny. It's not like I get sad every time I look at them. Instead, it's like, it's like a roadmap of where I've been. And maybe that's a coping skill of mine to try to deal with the pain of mm -hmm. my childhood. But I mean, I did, I covered most of my scars that were inflicted on me by other people with tattoos, as you can see. Sure. But it's like I look at these scars now and I can't hate where I've been without hating where I am. So, so I, I look at them and it's like, I can tell based on like, like this one, for example, was made by the group during a ritual. I can feel the feeling where I was then and versus the feeling in the life I've created now and it's like this really pretty road map of a soul progression. Sure. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? That I can think of. But do you have anything? Well, yeah, this is... Well, I don't know about that. Well, they could look up the dates on the basic satanic ritual site. Like, if you wanted to, you could look up SRA dates, and it'll show you all of the satanic rituals. SRA? Yeah. Okay. The Satanic Ritual Association. It'll tell you basically all of the, the typical dates which they use for their things. All right. Um, it's worth mentioning that when these perpetrators, when they target children, they target the same profile of the child. 
So also, if you really want to know like who is going to be targeted, you should pay close attention to your children and their personality types. So there's an interesting study that was done. Now I'm not going to remember the exact one, but what they did is they took a bunch of, of pedophile killers, mm -hmm. like people who killed children, out of the maximum security prison, and they took them to the Mall of America. And they gave them all Polaroid cameras and sent them out separately to take pictures of the children that, which they would normally target because they wanted to see if they could find like a typical sort of a similarity. I think it was four out of five of these people picked the same kid. And so what they found basically and what they were what these people helped them with, because to, to our obvious benefit, a lot of these serious sociopaths are actually proud of what they've done, so they're pretty glad to brag about it and talk to you about it. Um, they profile for children who have a very interesting personality type. They have to be very shy and quiet, but very strong. If you get shy but weak, they will they'll break down, their body will go to hell. Like They may not tell somebody, but you're going to just like lose your subject, basically. If they're strong, then obviously they're going to fight back, especially if they're strong and loud. But if you find strong and quiet, that kid's going to internalize a hell of a lot, and at the same time, they're not going to say anything. So if you have a kid who's got a real sort of strong will, strong personality type that's also very shy and quiet, that's a major target, super target for these types of people. Is there a specific age that they're targeting? Because you were four. Yeah, the majority of the ones that I have seen that are targeted when they are not part of a group are elementary age. So that would be probably, let's start it at four. Um, four to five is probably the limit to the youth, the age that I've seen them get to the young side. So four to five all the way to about 12, that's the target age. It's a wide, wide range. Yeah. Yeah. Do you worry about your son pop being all the time this is like the number one problem I mean, I, let's face it i've been through i can tell you there's a lot of things that are worse than death so um having personally experienced what it's like to be unable to escape and to be physically tortured and emotionally tortured i don't care whether someone shoots me i don't care whether i die what really scares me is something happening to my son and this is like the Achilles heel for me, and everyone knows that that's the case with those of us that escape from groups. It's like, you know, when I had him, I knew I was done for. If they ever found him, I'd be done. I already know that about myself. I am afraid of it all the time. I dream about it all the time. It's like, it torments me. I'm not afraid of him coming after me. And I have to have conversations with everyone in our house and, you know, his, his teachers about not only my public profile now, but also what I went through, and just, I have to be so dedicated, not only to, you know, explaining to them, nobody is to take this child, pick them up or not, if you have not recognized our faces, if it's not me or this person, I'll literally show them, they're not allowed to pick my son up. So that's not fun to go through that whole story, but also it's like, it's, it's not fun to have conversations with my son where I have to basically go through that whole thing. We're not gonna get in the car with somebody who's not, you know, go through the people type of thing. But yeah, you just found my Achilles heel. That's really what does it for me. When it comes to what I went through, it's like what the hell would ever happen if they took my son? And they do go after children. Children of? Yep, people who escape, which is quite rare. But, but they're not gonna target you specifically. That's how they try to keep in control, is by targeting whatever you're attached to. They have to have complete control of that. 
and it works. And, and like, God forbid you have a baby in one of these scenarios, which does happen for a lot of us. I mean, a lot of women who are in like these groups, they're getting pregnant at like 12, 13 sometimes. So some of these girls as teenagers are having babies in the group and that's why they can't leave, even if they want to, because their kids are now controlled by these people. God, I got, I was actually impregnated three times by, and then aborted by him. By your keeper? Yeah. So, yeah, he impregnated and then, then performed the, all of the abortions with rudimentary veterinary equipment, which did a hell of a lot of damage. It was very hard for me to conceive my son because of just how much damage was done. But, like, I was so traumatized about it, just like losing babies. Any woman would, who could relate to this, like, there's almost nothing more traumatic than losing babies. But now that I'm gone, I'm like, thank God, like, thank God that they died. Because I, you know, now, now knowing what it's like to love a child, I wouldn't have left, not at all. Yeah. Is there anything else for me there? <laughs> well, I appreciate you. I know we probably took more time than you really were planning on. I don't even know how long that was. Really? That's a lot less than I thought.